Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, just a quick word to say there was an issue with the recording of the first five or so minutes of our in-studio chat for today's show, meaning we had to use our backup audio for our three guests for the opening section of our discussion on England's T20 World Cup squad. It's still very much listenable and worth listening to, and the quality does improve drastically thereafter, so stick with it. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. We're recording in the Richie Benno commentary box today which makes a nice, if slightly warm change, and explains the change in background for those of you watching on YouTube. This week is our State of the 100 special, so I will also discuss everything from the world of cricket this week, including England's T20 World Cup squad announcement, the Asia Cup and the Test Series side at the Oval. We'll also dive deep and attempt to examine English cricket's new competition as it completes its second year from all angles. We've got interviews with Oval Invincible, Lauren Winfield-Hill and Kent Stalwart, Darren Stevens, who gives the view of the 100 from the county pro outside of the competition. And we've also got, for the first time on the show, ESPN Crick Info's Matt Roller joining us, a man who has perhaps watched more of the 100 than anyone else in the world. Matt, how are you? I'm very well. I'm, I'm less well having heard that claim to fame. I, I don't, don't want that to be my only selling point, but uh, if, if, that's what I've, if that's the role I've got to play, I'll play it. We're also joined by Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine editor and editor-in-chief, Joe Harmon and Phil Walker. Let's start with England's 220 World Cup squad. And I spoke to Mark Butcher about that and the English Africa series of cider, which will start on Thursday at the Oval. Mark, England's T20 World Cup squad was announced on Friday with the headline initially that Jason Roy has been left out. Uh, was that the right move, do you think? And what comes next for Roy as an international cricketer? Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many things. There's so many things bubbling around that, that, that decision, um, you know, on the, on the face of it, it's, it's probably the right one, I guess, given that given his his struggles with form. Um, also, you start to look at the, the World Cup squad and think there's a there's an enormous deficit in terms of tournament experience now that there is to be no Morgan. Um, of course, when they left out Jason Roy, they didn't know that the, the Johnny Besto news hadn't broken as yet. So they can't sort of be, um, uh, be Nostradamus about things like that. Um, Josh Butler has an injury. He'll be he'll be back for sure. Um, ben Stokes comes back in, having not played any sort of short form cricket. Uh, all of a sudden, it starts to look a little bit sort of shaky at the top of the order. Um, you know, England have lots of options, but they don't have tournament hardened, um, proven options. 
uh, a plenty as they might well have done. So it's interesting. It also throws up that the, the interesting sort of difference between the form of Jason Roy being a sort of a droppable offence, um, somebody who has an enormous amount of, uh, of credit in the bank in terms of what he's done in, in, in major tournaments. And then you you look across the across the water at the at the test match side where a lack of form doesn't seem to, to doesn't seem to make any difference whatsoever. So I mean, the the messaging on the outside anyway, you know, you, you you don't know whether don't know what's going on inside or behind closed doors. But on the outside, the messaging seems a little bit muddled. Um, you know, you've also got I suppose the the, the spectre of Alex Hales in in the background, and um, you know, given that the the, comp- the complete um, decimation of England's sort of top order explosive options, um, you know, surely it's time for, for, for what well, some might say, surely it's time for pragmatism to, to start reigning um, and to bring in the guy who's in, you know, is in wonderful, wonderful form, um, has played all around the world and is, uh, is, is frankly terrifying to opposition bowling attacks. Um, and I suppose the onus would be on with Morgan no longer there, a, a new sort of a new um, management setup. To uh, to decide whether or not they can let bygones be bygones and allow him back in, but um, so I mean it's interesting that you know they look down the rest of the squad. I mean Butler himself is injured at the moment. Livingston is injured. Wood and Wokes both in the, the the World Cup squad played no cricket all year, both still injured. Jordan is injured. Um, even in the reserves, Tamar Mills is injured. <laughs> you know, um, it it, it oh, it's. It looks a little bit sort of nineties like in terms of its um, in terms of the portents for a recipe for disaster. Um, of course, there's a little while to go. I do have the um, the Pakistan series to kind of flush some things out, and also to give um, you know five uncapped players a chance to to stake a claim to 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 maybe to move up if some of those players don't make it in terms of their fitness. But um, it's not an ideal place to be, and it's a stark reminder also of. The idea of having sort of like four-year cycles and sort of having having the plans begin, you know, professional sport being what it is, you can make all of these plans, but they can be undone at the at the final hour by injuries. The interesting thing in this case for England is that the the injuries and the the lack of form and all of these things have been have been there front and center for a very long time. So the only contingency that England have in order to try and do something about that should um, you know those those favoured players not make it back. Is the Pakistan series comes coming up, which you know is important for a thousand reasons. You know, not least because we've not been there for what is it, sixteen years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but also now because it is, it's like a, it's, it, it becomes absolutely desperate stakes for a lot of players to 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 stake their claim of fitness, to get to find some form, and to give Josh Butler some kind of confidence going into that cricket World Cup that he's got somewhere close to something that he would have liked um, at, the, at the start of his captaincy. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask you more about Hales in a second, but just first on on Bairstow, who uh, later that same day that the World Cup squad was announced, it was announced that he was been ruled out of the tournament due to a freak accident whilst playing golf. Uh, the reports in the media that he slipped over while walking to a tee box and Bairstow said on Instagram that he'll need surgery. I mean, before we get to how England actually replace him, it's just a massive loss, not just for England, but for the tournament really, isn't it? Yeah, for the tournament, for the, for the test match coming up. I mean, it, it's great, great for Harry Brook. Um, because you, you, you're thinking he should be in there. He should be in the team, uh, but given the way that he's playing and how um, you, the, the word ceiling is, is something that seems to be used quite a lot. Well, he has quite a high one as far as I can see. So great news for him. But yeah, I mean, for the tournament, it, like I said, it kind of throws all the plans into disarray. You could, you could say, 
again, going back to the idea that there's some hypocrisy involved in terms of leaving out one player for form and, and leaving and leaving in another player for form or lack of or whatever it might be. But you, I suppose you could say with leaving out Jason Roy that England had that position at the top of the order covered. They had a lot more up options perhaps than they might think that they have in terms of options at the top of the order in the, in the test match team. However, you remove Bairstow um, for, from that, who's been, you know, he's been batting at number four in the T20 side. He's been moved up to take Jason Roy's place and suddenly he's gone as well. And then all of a sudden like, whoa, hang on. Um, you know, we're, we're a little, we're much shorter than we thought we were going to be. Um, I can, I, I know how it can happen, you know, out in the golf course. To, the, part of the reason why the old boys used to wear, wear metal spikes because there are, you know, there are all kinds of um, dangerous inclines. And if you're not paying attention properly, you can come a cropper. Um, but it's, you know, it's such a shocking thing to happen to him when he is arguably in the, in the form of his life and, um, you know, enjoying cricket as he never has done before. So um, just on a personal level for Johnny, we, we wish him well. And, uh, you know, very sad that we won't be seeing him smash it all over the place in uh, SE11 on Thursday. Yeah. And then on Hales, uh, so Key in the press conference when the squad was announced, said that he was discussed a lot, that he feels he served his time, but they just felt it wasn't the best option in the squad from a cricket point of view, basically. Uh, from your point of view, do you think he is, if you take away everything else, just purely from a cricket point of view, is he the next best T20 opener in the country, do you think? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Phil Salt has come on leaps and bounds. And so, you know, when when the, the door of opportunity closes for Bairstow, it opens for Salt. And I'm sure he'll do a, a terrific job because I think he's, he's wonderfully talented. But again, in terms of, you know, you're going into a world tournament, you've got best best bowlers, best batters in the world slugging it out um, if you're taking the new ball for um, for whoever it might be whoever England's opponents might be in the in the group stages of the competition I think you'd, you'd be quite happy not bowling at Alex Hales and bowling at a, a relatively inexperienced um, a youngster like Phil Saul so I mean look it, yeah I, mean, I think that's been the case for a very long time it's not just now it's um, you know we've all, always known that the reasons that he is not playing for England at the moment I'd go beyond what he does on the field um, but you know sometimes needs must and as I said you know you've got a, a, a totally new management group who can kind of make their own decisions they shouldn't be beholden to decisions that are made in the past um, but you know maybe 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 it's it, it's the whole thing is just too, too too horrendous to contemplate and that's the end of it in which case um there's not much else anybody else can do about it, is there? Yeah. How, how much does that kind of matter, if you, if you know what I mean? Like, how much is the makeup of a squad and how much everyone likes each other? Does that does that make a team better at, at cricket? Does it is it something that is important or is it uh, is it something that we think players, even if they don't get on with each other, they should be able to put that aside when they get onto the field and do their job, basically? It's the, it's the argument with Kevin Peterson. It was the argument with Jeffrey Boycott. It's been the argument with, with players through the ages as to whether they're divisive or not. I tend to think that in, in tournament play, you want the, the best players you can possibly lay your hands on. And so, it, really, it doesn't matter. Try and put the best team out there that you possibly can. Um, and the analogy that I used at the time with, with, with Kevin, I think, was that it's not a club team. You know, <laughs> you know it, it's not, oh, we're not going to sign this bloke from whatever club it was because nobody likes him and the wives don't get on or whatever it might be. It's not, you know, it's not a sort of social, social club on Saturdays. It's, um, 
it's a tournament that needs winning. Look, I, I, I have, I have, I have every respect for for them sticking to their guns and saying, nope, he's not our guy. What was done was was uh, was unforgivable, and that's the end of it. I think to suddenly to swerve away from that and say that on cricketing reasons or is not the right fit on cricketing reasons is is being a little bit disingenuous. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned Brooke, who is likely to come into the middle order in the Test match. Uh, what what should we sort of expect from him as a player? Do you think? Um, well, I think he kind of fits the he fits the mould entirely in terms of what England or, or how England want to play and how they want to to go about imposing themselves on on Test matches. Um, he's just wonderfully talented. I saw him for the first time in, in New Zealand and down in Queenstown when he was captain of the England under 19s I think he was relieved of the captaincy for their last game in the in the tournament for a for a breach of um, of, uh, of curfew. Um, so he's a man after my own heart. Um, <laughs> but I, I just think he's a fabulous player. I really do. Um, and he's he's wonderfully confident. And um, and number five is kind of the perfect fit for him as well. So uh, I suppose I suppose that the one the one worry that you have is that sort of like the, the, the purple patch that he was in seems like it was quite a long time ago now. Although he did make a brilliant hundred against um, South Africa, representing the Lions before the series started. So it seems as though the break from Red Bull cricket hasn't done him any harm. Um, but you know that form form doesn't stick around forever, and that you just hope that he's still got that same swagger and the same confidence going into the Test match, and that England don't find themselves 30 for three, you know. Although, you know, it, it worked for KP, didn't it, back in 2005, mm. come being in early and imposing yourself early. Um, but I, th- I think he's, sort of technically, I don't, there's, there are very few holes to pick in him from what I've seen. Um, he's a pretty orthodox player, um, but obviously has all of the uh, all the bells and whistles of the, of the modern batter as well. So, um, I, very exciting. He's he's truly talented lad and um, I wish him all the best. Yeah, and and which way do you see that final test heading? I mean, both games have been pretty one-sided so far. Do, do England have the momentum, or is that too simplistic, given how long there's been between, between the two games? The fact that both have been decided pretty much by T on the first day. No, well, it's not, the, if anything has been proven by the first two test matches, the momentum is the biggest load of bunkum in the world. <laughs> um, you know, one side gets hammered by an innings, and then the next side gets hammered by an innings. The toss, I think, might be vital. Not because not because of the surface, but the decision made um, on on the on the day on day one. I think both teams will be erring towards sticking the other side in. I mean, the weather weather around is not likely to be great. The oval pitch looks like it's. I, I was there. Um, what day are we now? Is it Friday? And it, uh, it it looks the whole ground looks in fabulous nick, and then the pitch looks like it might have a bit of bit of pace and bounce in it. And I just think that both teams, both teams are much stronger in bowling than they are batting, and so you want to try and get, try and get the leg up early in the in the Test match, uh, and then control it from there. I think England showed, and, and England's approach with the bat showed um, that, given the opportunity to kind of eke out as many runs as you think you need to to win the game in whatever fashion you, uh, in whatever fashion will win you that match, that they're quite happy to do that. And I was I was unbelievably pleased to see them do it because it was. It was mature. It was sensible. It was it was test match batting, um, and if you get end up knocking a side over for 150 and find yourself in a position where you can where you can put 200 on that sort of lead first innings, and it doesn't matter how long it takes, there's so much time left in the game to then go about uh, winning it. 
And the other side is, is you've got to give your, you know, give your, give your bowlers a chance to recover. And that's another thing that I think England sides in the, in the recent past um, under Joe Root were awful at doing. You know, they might find themselves in a great position having bowled a team out cheaply, but then went out and kind of squandered that and their bowlers were back out in the middle again. And it's no wonder they're all injured, is it? Um, although they're slightly unrelated things. But you know what I'm saying. You know, you've got to you, you've got to play the game. You've got to play the game over the course of the, the length of time that there that there is there available to you. And having your having your gun bowling attack back out back out on the park, having managed to to rack up the the sum total of forty overs with the bat, is not doing anybody any favours. Certainly not Jimmy Anderson's mood anyway. Cheers, Butch. Thanks very much for your time, Matt. Is England's T20 World Cup squad good enough to win the tournament? Uh, I think it is, in that I think if you look at recent T20 World Cups, there's quite a lot of randomness that goes on. You look at Australia in the last one, and I think they're, what, fourth most recent, fifth most recent T20 World Cup game. They got absolutely obliterated by England and Dubai. Um, And leading into that tournament, they got hammered by Bangladesh and West Indies in some bilateral series. So I think in in terms of the fact that weird stuff happens during T20 World Cups, and if you win four games in a row, that can be enough. Um, In that sense, I think it is. Uh, I also think that they will go into the group, uh, which has Australia and New Zealand as, in it, as second favourites at best. And I think that the game against New Zealand already is sort of looking like one that will probably determine who goes through to the semis. Um, I think we've probably got quite used to England going into World Cups in the past couple of years or ICC events with uh, one of the strongest squads. And I'm not necessarily sure that you'd say the same on paper this year, but it is still a good, a good squad, I think, if not a brilliant one. Bowling looks light, doesn't it? So, so, so that's the area where they're not, you don't think they're quite as strong as they were a year ago? Yeah, and I think also, obviously, the batting, that they're, it is a huge thing to, to have lost, effectively, two, two, two of your best batters and Jason Roy, whose form's fallen off a cliff, and Johnny Bairstow, who's, who's out with the, the freak injury um, that... Who knows how it was sustained? Um, depends whether you believe viral WhatsApp voice notes or not. Um, <laughs> I think we'll stick here with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they effectively lost two of, their, two, of their, two of the people you would have said were their best batters a couple yeah. of years ago. And, and it's, it's a great shame, obviously, that Joffre won't be able to take that new ball out there on those pitches as well. That's a glaring uh, loss It's for a seam attack for me, which you know has been an area of weakness for a while anyway and now feels even weaker, wooden... Wokes feel like punts at this stage, given they've not played all summer. You could argue that Reese Topley is England's most important seamer going into this World Cup. You know, he's he's a really good bowler and he's had a really good form recently, but that's not a position you want to be in, really, given that he's not that experienced and he's not world-class at this stage. Yeah, I feel actually quite slightly gloomy about their prospects, really. I think the Pakistan series will be fascinating to watch and it's a great thing it's happening, but I'm not sure it's the greatest warm-up for them, really. I think given it's a sort of almost second string side in, in some senses, I think they can get beaten quite heavily, which is never good preparation for a world tournament. And then the, the, I think the, the departure of Morgan feels sort of almost more significant with every passing day, really, in that there was that sense that the white ball setup almost looked after itself, that it didn't really matter who the coach or captain was because Morgan had set this template in place. It feels like that has disappeared quite quickly. Roy's form has not helped. Suddenly the side has changed a lot. just feels a bit hodgepodge and I agree I think they could still win it they've got the players to do so but if they do I think it's going to be more through individual brilliance than a kind of clearly coherent plan which is what England's white ball cricket has been based around over the last few years yeah it feels like it's going to take someone having a really good comp isn't it it's going to take Butler having a really good run of form in the knockout stages or something like that or or in the crunch game someone really steps up 
It, it, it is odd, though, isn't it? Because Australia won the thing last time out, having, you know, blustered through the early stages. They never really performed coherently as a team. Never took it that seriously. Never took it that. seriously. <laughs> picked their test team. And Mitchell Marsh had a couple of good, good days out. And suddenly you've, you've won the World Tournament. So there can be a hell of a lot. And it's all good fun talking in the build-up in the phony war. But T20 cricket in that kind of condensed two-week winner-takes-all shot at the title kind of tournament, as you say, it is random and it is slightly wild and there is a, there is a kind of irrationality to it as well. Um, so, yeah, in, England could turn up there and, and be exposed by their you know, the lack of legs in their pace bowling, bowling attack, um, the lack of depth in their spin bowling options as well. Yeah, Mo and Rash remain the only real persuasive options. They've gone cold on Matt Parkinson. Liam Dawson, as we know, is a, is a kind of cement mixer of a cricketer. You know, he comes in here and there as, as per, but wouldn't really cut the mustard, certainly not out in Australia. But then if you're looking to be more positive about it, then you have in, in, in Salt and Brook two interesting candidates on, on, on the bench. You have Livingston, who's this kind of beguiling nutcase that, you know, you lot you're in love with, but he, he, could, he could explode at this tournament for sure. You got the best all-round cricketer in the world, albeit with a in and out record. I know in T Twenty cricket, but Stokes now comes in at number four in the kind of Morgan hinge point slot in the order. You got the best opener in the world in Butler, uh, and so there, there's a lot of colour and variety and diversity and interest. I think in this side, albeit it, it, there's no guarantees that it coalesces in the way that you would have been pretty sure that it would have done un, under Morgan. Yeah, the best though Butler opening partnership, which was what we had for about six hours. Uh, you know, you can go into a world tournament feeling pretty comfortable that, that one or both are going to come off in most matches. And I like Salt a lot, and I think he should get the chance to open now. I'd put Will Jackson in the squad. I would, I would go for Salt in the side, but Jackson in the, in the squad. Yeah, I was a bit surprised that Salt got the nod over Jacks. Actually, what do you think? Matthew? Yeah, I, I think Salt, having had the 100 that he had, where he was really dominant at the top of the order, and having obviously played with Butler and he's seen him firsthand, I wasn't too surprised. And I think he sort of feels like he's the guy that's been groomed almost for it. He's served his time in the middle order as well, hasn't he? Uh, on the middle order as well, just one thing that I picked out was that Ben Stokes is penciled in at number four. I mean, he might well be a player to move off as well, or Milan could be, but Stokes has never batted at number four for England in T20s. He's not really played any T20 cricket in the last... Uh, well, he hasn't played any T20 cricket in the last year. His last game was in the 100 before his break from cricket in 2021. Uh, and he last played for England in the format in the March before that. And his overall record in the format isn't great as well. Phil, am I wrong to be thinking this is a bit of a punt England are taking mm. with Stokes? Or yeah, you should are, we yeah. just trust that he's Ben Stokes and it's a tournament so he'll turn up? I, I, think, I think it's a really good slot for him. And, and I wrote a little thing in the magazine saying this. I think that... Stokes has a has an issue whereby he doesn't hit his first ball for four. He hits his fourth or fifth ball for four, and he takes a little bit of time to get going. And I think if he's in there at five or six in the in the real finisher slot, then I think you might find that he'd be short short changed a wee bit. Um, but give, putting him in at four gives him enough time to get a headwind into an innings, and then it becomes a straight equation. And then it becomes: Do you have the balls? Do you have the guts? Do you have the brain? and the game sense and the nous to to find your way home in the in the you know in, in the pressure cooker of a of a world tournament and we know that that's that's what he's made his name as a cricketer 
So I don't have an issue with it. I like it. I think if I was going to pick him in any position in the side, then I would put him at four. I, to me, that makes sense. But why not? What about not taking him to Pakistan? Given well, that- I mean, I, I think that's silly. But then this is this is Stokes, who exists on his own plane. Stokes has his own ecosystem around him. And if Stokes says, I don't want to do it, or I need to rest, or I have something else going on, who can say, then all of English cricket bows down. But look, yeah, ideally, you'd have him out there uh, learning the, the specific components of, of, of that particular role, for sure. And, uh, and any time England take the field without Ben Stokes in that side is, is, is a lesser event and a lesser side. That said, as I say, he, he kind of adopts his own position in the whole, the whole landscape of English cricket. And, and for whatever reason, he won't be there. It is, it is unfortunate, though. And I imagine that Butler will be quietly a little bit peeved that he doesn't have his best collection of players going into this this world tournament obviously the first one that he's going to be leading out so that Pakistan squad includes five uncapped players Will Jacks Jordan Cox Ollie Stone Tom Hellman Luke Wood Uh, we'll discuss that tour in more detail a bit close to the time Uh, but Joe it's striking now that England have available at least in theory uh, five bowlers of capable of getting beyond 90 miles per hour right in the Woods Stone Gleeson and Mills that's something I don't know if they would have ever had that before. Um, it feels at least worth pointing out. Yeah, and I suppose that has kind of crept up on us and they wouldn't necessarily have been the names that you'd have picked out a couple of years ago if you had said who are going to be the 90 mile hour England bowlers. They're all pretty raw that you said there. I mean, I'm not... It's one thing being 90 miles an hour, but in T20, if you don't get it right, that can that can be a real drawback. Um, in a, On Australian pitches, which will be flat, you'd expect, they could end up being fodder. And this is why I just... I'm not... I'm not wholly convinced that they have the class there. I think a lot let's rests on Rashid and Mo. Can, can I ask Joe if if they if they are fit, Wooden Wokes? Do you feel more confident? Do you think that there's there are even the right people to have in that position? Uh, Woods, yeah, I think Woods definitely got a role to play if he's fit. Wokes, I'm not, I'm, I'm not convinced. He bowled well at the start of that last T20 World Cup and then took some tap right at the end, uh, and he'd done quite well at the IPL, I think in the lead up yeah. and then lost his place because um, but having not played for England for six or seven years something ridiculous yeah in T20. I, I would fear that he'd go the distance in Australia really I mean obviously I think he's a fantastic cricketer but T20 is by distance his his, his least good format um, a, a word on Jordan from what I've seen this summer I've seen quite a few games really well no. for Surrey yeah he's 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 bowling the same same pace as he ever has. He's, he's still... I think he's bowling quicker honestly I think yeah he's, t- he's touching 91-92 in a way right. he never has before yeah. I think He's obviously a natural natural cricketer uh, and he's in great shape and he looks fit. Uh, and he's now a, an elder statesman as well, so he brings that kind of nous to, to the show as well. I, I think I think it could be quite an interesting sort of swan song for Jordan, whose who's reputation among T20 analysts and experts has, and nerdsters has kind of gone a little bit up and down, hasn't it, over the last two or three years? But he looks right in, in, the, in the mix at the moment. Yeah, he's a very interesting one, isn't he? Because after the last... T20 World Cup, you could have seen that semi-final being his last game for England because yeah. he's not in the ODI setup, and obviously, you know, his, his role is bowling at the death, and he got hammered by was it Nisham and Mitchell, yeah. um, and and that that could have been it. But instead, he's actually come back and now looks pretty integral, especially when you think of the loss of Roy and Bairstow. He is one of the senior players. It's him, him and Moeen are basically the sort of two vice captains, I suppose, to to Butler. I was going to say, I think Butler will lean heavily on him. Morgan's always talked about how important Jordan is to have in his side even aside from all the different assets he brings as a player um, and yeah I think Butler's going to need some help On to the final England-South Africa test uh, discussed a fair bit with 
Mark Harry Brook like he's coming to the side with Bearstow injured. But Phil, let's start with uh, let's discuss South Africa. They were not very good at Old Trafford. Um, what changes do you think they should make for the Oval? Is that it for Harmer? Do you think and for Markram? Van der Dusen is out injured. They've added Wien Mulder to the squad. How do they replace him? There's a few questions over the side, isn't there? Yeah, massively so. I was surprised by their selection. I couldn't believe that they didn't play Janssen after he bowled well and batted excellently at Lords. And I mean, I'd underestimated how good he was as a batter for sure uh, before the Test series. But seeing him play at Lords, couldn't believe that they didn't pick him for Old Trafford. I could understand that they wanted to try and get Harmer in, who I, pers- who I felt sorry for. And as, as you know, I know him a little bit and been absolutely desperate. It was a kind of career moment for him to play a Test match at, in England and. Obviously, they sunk the place out, bundled out by halfway through the afternoon, and then he had nothing to work with, really. As for this test match here, they brought, as you say, Wian Mulder into the side as a sort of seam bowling, lower order, all-rounder option that could possibly come into play. But I personally, I would imagine that they bring Janssen back, possibly if they want to, if they want to play Harmer, and just looking at the pitch... I mean, it's it's late summer now. It's September time. The sun is still baking down and it is the Oval. Albeit thunderstorms last two nights. That is also true, for sure. Uh, if they want to keep Harmer in, then possibly Ngidi makes way, um, who looked a bit leggy, I thought, at Old Trafford. Um, the one for me as well is, is the keeper, who, who I had a few concerns about before the start of the series, having watched him over the winter, and he did okay, and he made a, made a test hundred, you know, grounded one out, but... Um, he doesn't really convince for me, certainly with the bat. And Ryan Rickleton is their second keeper, uh, and he did really well for Northampton in the build-up to this summer. He, he's got himself used to English cricket a little bit more. Um, and I think in due course, I think they look away from from Verian to to, a, to another keeper. Um, but then it would be a big call to drop your keeper in in the build-up to this final game. Either, however you spin it, and we had this conversation a month ago, however you spin it, it's 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 not quite right for them. The balance isn't quite there. Uh, Aidan Markram, who I wanted, fancied and talked up again, always looks good for half an hour and, and, and then gets himself out in silly ways. Uh, he may well step aside, um, but it's difficult. And I think they will be kicking themselves at the way that it went at Old Trafford, the selections that they made. Um, I think for sure Janssen has to come back into 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 the setup, and then it's whether they they gamble with with Harmer or, or stick with Ngidi. I think Matt, I always find it hard previewing tests because you are just shooting in the dark. But how, how do you see it panning out? Yeah, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? I mean, both of those games have been decided within. It felt like a couple of sessions as well because South Africa tied themselves and not so much at Old Trafford by picking the two spinners and letting that dictate everything. It was quite reminiscent of England at the Gabba, where you turn up expecting something you don't get that but you just stick with the plan anyway and it goes horribly wrong um i don't know i i hope for the sort of the sake of the cricketing summer or whatever that we get a decent decider i, I mean the the oval test that obviously wasn't originally meant to be the decider last year and in the england india series was was a really good one um and they served up a really good pitch which you know relied on that brilliant spell by Boomerah to to sort of turn the game and decide the game so i hope we get something like similar to that where um it, it, it's slightly higher scoring game both sides make runs and it's not over within a couple of sessions because much as the old Trafford test had good bits. So, for example, the collapse on the third day, it was pretty much over by the time that had happened. Uh, just on the pitch very briefly, obviously, we work out of this ground. We've seen a lot of cricket this year. The pitch is a real triumph uh, 
for for the Oval Ground staff, and it's not been that case for for much of the last five ten years. But the pitch has got pace and bounce. Uh, looking at it now, albeit two days out, there's a tiny bit of green on there, but I think it will it will play as it has played for most of the year, i.e. A top-class cricket pitch, and it will, will reward good cricketers. We've had good games, really. Sorry, we've had some stinkers away from home, but the home bounce. games have really all been good games. I think and there's been quite a lot of like nice, nice sort of scoring games as well, where you sort of trade three hundred type scores, exactly, and there's, yeah. someone wins by three wickets at the end, and everyone's in the game. And I, I just hope whoever wins the toss and probably bowls, that being the way of things these days. Whoever's inserted, whoever bats first, I hope they just get through to the middle of the afternoon, only one or two down, and then I think we can settle in for a really good game of cricket. But as you're saying, it it can be done almost by lunch at the moment because top orders are fragile. Teams are dominated by their their pace attacks. I hope that Elgar's plan, by the way, at Old Trafford was a relatively sound one. Win the toss, take the plunge, hold your nose and bat, and hope that you get a wee bit lucky up to lunch and then the sun comes out and then you can settle in. So the plan was okay. It just backfired on him because they were five down by lunch. Whoever bats first, get to lunch, one down, then we can settle in and it could be a humdinger. Hmm. Uh, on to the Asia Cup, which has been uh, great so far, if hard to follow if you've been in the UK. Uh, Shrank have completed big last over chases against Bangladesh and Afghanistan. I don't know if you've been, if you followed this, but Shrank of Bangladesh is basically the the Palace Brighton of cricket in that no one's really sure why it's a rivalry but it's a Joe, really good did one. Did you hear this? <laughs> did you hear this Joe? I'm not going to explain the Palace Brighton rivalry on a cricket podcast. I think we'll lose too many viewers <laughs> but it's a good comparison. Yeah uh, so before before this game you had uh, Sri Lanka's captain Dasan Shanika saying that Bangladesh are an easier opponent than Afghanistan because they've only got two world-class bowlers and then Bangladesh team director Kalava Mood said kind of said at least we've got two world-class bowlers we don't see any in Sri Lanka. Uh, there have been victory dance in the past and, and smash glass doors. It's basically always been great. And, uh, and I don't think anyone can really work out why there's a lot of needle, but it is it is good. There was another really good India-Pakistan game with uh, Pakistan chasing down 182 with a ball to spare. We had runs for Kohli, Rizwan, a match-winning cameo for Mohamed Nawaz. There was tactical intrigue, pivotal drop catches. I think these these teams should should play each other more often. That's a good idea. Mm. isn't it, it what's really nice as well is how the, the tournament organizers they obviously put together a format that was high on competitive it, 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 the only thing that mattered was you know the, the the integrity of the competition from a cricketing point of view and they just lucked out that it happens that india pakistan have had three uh, they could be three times in a row if it gets to the final the the prime time sunday night tv slot incredible I mean, yeah, it's, it's almost consistent with those r- repeated coincidences where they all come out the same hat for every single ICC tournament since 1975. It's, it's odd, that, isn't it? Yeah. If only there was a way for Pakistan to play each other multiple times without having to stage a, a cricket tournament which involved a whole continent. Unfortunately, mm. uh, mm. can't think of a, a way to do that. <laughs> um, the other big piece of news in that competition is that Ravindra Dadeja has got a knee injury that needs surgery, so he might well miss the T20 World Cup, which would be a big blow for India. But we'll discuss that a bit more after the Asia Cup, when it looks a bit more clear how India will replace him. And then just to run through quickly the rest of international cricket. Ryan uh, Burl. Yeah, we, we should spend a bit of time on this, actually. Zimbabwe beat Australia in ODI, which is great. Ryan Burl took five wickets and three overs, which was the fewest overs bowled by anyone in ODI to take five wickets. So that was good. There uh, you go. Warner hit 94 out of Australia's total of 140-odd, which was uh, the highest percentage of, of runs in a bowled out ODI inning. So two dream big stats there. Ben, yeah, it, was, really? it was huge, yeah. Uh, and then and then Zimbabwe, and then Zimbabwe chase it down uh, with Ruggs in hand. So that was uh, a real, a really big moment. For them, yeah. I I watched the highlights of this. I I, I got BT uh, with my brother-in-law 
got gone halves on it. It's quite expensive, isn't it? Not specifically to watch the highlights of this. No, didn't had no, no idea it was on, right. Joe. <laughs> okay. But just going through, riding a wave last night, saw it, put them on. Forty-five minute highlights. They were they were good. Ryan Burl, my new favourite cricketer. Never yeah. heard of him. Well, eight hours ago. So so fifteen months ago, Ryan Burl posted on Twitter, uh, like basically begging for a sponsor for him and his teammates because they had to glue their shoes together at the end of each series. And then I think a sponsor came. I think it was Puma who came through. Uh, and now he's uh, taken five five weeks and three overs in a, a landmark win for Zimbabwe. So that's good. And they, as we've discussed a few times recently in the podcast, they've had a few good results. They pushed India close. They beat uh, Bangladesh in an ODI series. So things looking up a bit uh, there. Apologies in your roundup of it. Did you mention Aaron Finch? Uh, no, I didn't. Who is under pressure, averaging less than 15. Matthew Roller? This year. Is he a spent force? Oh, that's tough, isn't it? it? It reminds you of the two of two England players in Roy and Morgan, doesn't it? Because he's, a, he's largely playing T20 cricket, similar to both of them, and therefore it's quite hard to get his form back. And then also he's batting in a team where they bat down and they have sort of Cam Green at number eight. And so he's got to go quite hard. But then... The harder he goes, the more likely he is to get out, and it just looks a bit of a problem. I think I was just scrolling Twitter before we recorded, and he had, had his—I think he had his pad blown off by Bolt today um, right. against New Zealand. So um, another failure there. But he's in the World Cup squad, and he's going to captain them in that tournament. So yeah. I think he's got at least another runs, couple of months. And win it. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to come on to this at the end of the show, but it feels like a good moment too. Uh, we had a question from Anik asking, uh, "How much cricket do you guys watch?" Uh, do you sit there on a February morning watching the Pakistan four-day domestic competition and the West Indies one-day cup or is it strictly just the big international games and county cricket, uh, Phil? Well, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Anik, who are you, who are you asking? Because it, it will vary from person to person, I think. You'd say that's fair, Ben? I, th- I think it's probably fair, yeah. I, I read that. I read that tweet as well. And the first thing I thought was when I think Yaz said to Taha, or it might have been you actually, a week, a month or so ago, you've been watching quite a lot of of, of Ireland's women's team of late, and then you went on and 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 he had to give chapter and verse on that. And I think, I think that's a bit of a glimpse. But then, yeah, there are different scenarios for different people around this table, right? Um, and with the best will in the world, I mean, you know, the hundred's been happening, Joe, right? You are I've aware. Been, of I've it. actually been watching quite a lot of the hundred, Phil, okay, and that will sorry. become clear as we talk in depth. S- sorry, of course, of course, no, yeah, maybe not as much as Matt. But um, but yeah. a bit of it. Okay, okay, yeah. D- different levels for different folks, I would say. Yeah, but if something's on, I'll, I'll, I'll it, like if if I'll, I will if there's a game on while I'm working, I'll make sure to have it on. And if there's a player that I want to watch, I think I'll try and seek out. You, you're still you're still the bloke in the office who scampers across the floor to show us some little mini controversy from some game in Karnataka <laughs> or somewhere like that. Yeah, I can't I can't talk on this, but I did see Ben in the press box. At, I think the Leeds test earlier this year, sort of dual wielding. I think it was Ranji Trophy final highlights <laughs> and an Ireland bilateral game. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's Ben. That's that, ben. That'd be the boy. There might be probably fair to say there's a correlation between how long you've worked in cricket and how much cricket you're watching I think there's probably something in that inverse relationship mm. Tim David has been called up for Australia's T20 World Cup squad he's yet to play a game for them so it's sort of a Joffre Archer type selection scenario Matt tell us about him and how excited we should be uh, he's a big boy isn't he he's six foot five I think pretty pretty solid guy um hits straight down the ground and yeah it's it's I think I've probably only recently woken up to how bigger thing it is in Australian cricket sort of politically the fact that this guy who doesn't have a state contract and is very much out of the system has um has sort of been been floated in last minute and I think people sort of I think there's a certain maybe establishment fear that this could become the new norm where people are turning down national contracts and 
um, just doing what Big Tim's doing and sort of taking himself around the world. I think, weirdly, I think it's probably come at a quite a bad time for Tim David because of the fact that he's been doing, he's travelled so much and played so much T20 cricket over the past 18 months or so that I wouldn't be surprised if he turns up for his debut pretty knackered because I think he's, he's gone Big Bash, PSL, IPL, Blast 100, then straight after his last 100 game, he flew to the CPL. Then he's going from the CPL, I think, to India, where they obviously naturally play before the World Cup. Um, for some bilateral games, which I think is where he'll debut, and then into a World Cup. Um, and the 100 was the first time he's actually had a quiet series. I was going to say, my sense was that his form was tailing off. So, and, you know, maybe that's maybe this is sort of psycho babble and he's actually fine and he's going to come roaring back. But I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of that run, he's actually quite physically and mentally knackered about the fact he's played so much cricket, um, even if he's only facing 20 balls and in innings. Um, this taps into a... a- half-baked maybe quarter-baked a half-assed theory of mine that because of the nature the relentless nature of it and because of the sameness say if you take Jason Roy's story and this notion that you are forever got half a foot on the coach for the next game wherever that may be and while there are subtleties and nuances within a T20 game of cricket there's nonetheless a kind of routine regulated reality to it right you know you kick off at six o'clock every evening every two or three nights you you know you hope to face 25 30 balls and maybe get to 50 and that's that's your life that's your the extent of your professional life that must eat away at your motivation and your psyche and your uh, your freshness right it must do because there's no variety or there's little variety in there and then when you and so if you if you fall away if you if you go through a bad trot how do you find the light and shade to get out of it how do you how do you emerge from that that slump when everything reminds you so awfully perfectly of what happened yesterday and the same thing and the same thing and the same thing um tim david probably doesn't apply to him at all but that idea that you are forever on the move and yet you're moving from something which looks remarkably similar to what you had before. And if so much of getting out of form is visualising a better way of living, a better a better fate for yourself, if so much of it is that, and it is because it's all up there, then surely it becomes difficult, right? It must become very challenging for a player when you are on that remorseless, relentless carousel day after day after day after day. And eventually you must you must just think, sod this for a game of soldiers you know and, and you watch Roy you see his body language this year I mean your heart goes out to him you'd have to have a heart of stone not to feel for the, for the lad because he's a very likable and selfless cricketer but how do you arrest your, your, your way out of that when you are repeating the same horrors day after day after day like a carbon copy well it's kind of like a, a form of bubble life even outside of the times when people have to be right. in, in bubbles yeah it's uh, a good comparison but interestingly Roy did take that break at the start of the year to freshen himself up so he he did step away from it but it just hasn't worked for him since he's come back I, I don't know what don't know whether the reasons that he stepped away from it are still bothering him now and, and affecting his form um but he, yeah he definitely looks like a cricketer he's just had had too much yeah I, I if you just sort of use the analogy or not the analogy the, the comparison of and this is not kind of I like Red Bull cricket at all it's not but if you if you take say a an opener opener who tends to feature more in four-day cricket five-day cricket there's more scope to find a different way through those 
rough periods of form. You know, you can you can take a different guard. You can decide not to play a shot until lunch. You can conversely decide to play a few shots before lunch. You can you can you can take things in a different way because there's more scope and more variety in there. But if you're Jason Roy or if you're Tim David who comes in with an average of thirty balls per innings to go and you've got to open your shoulders from ball two, then there's not much kind of there's not much scope for variety in there you know and and so you can end up becoming very funneled I think and very 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 stuck in that in that remorselessly repeatable one one track and that that must be very challenging I think for these players Tim David the player of the tournament then is that, what, is that what we're going for and Aaron Finch 400 runs job done <laughs> I like this, the, the, the theory that you have to be in as much chaos as possible or just the right amount of chaos going into the T20 World Cup if you really want to be a, a contender. That's uh, that's the only way. Um, very, very final bit of news before we get into the 100. Uh, and we just should mention that Colin de Grantham has retired from international cricket. He's got uh, a higher difference in his batting and bowling averages than Ben Stokes in test cricket, which is impressive. Uh, there might be a bit of BBL, NOC stuff involved. He appeared in the draft list for the Big Bash League and New Zealand cricket was surprised, I think. And then he retired quite soon after that but you know he's had a, a, a great career if, if perhaps not as long as it as otherwise might have been uh, having come into it quite late so uh. I saw Kane Williamson was talking around this issue a few days ago regarding Trent Bolt but also with with CDG as well uh, and he's saying for now my only focus is New Zealand cricket but he acknowledges and he doesn't say much Kane Williamson but he said you know things are changing very very quickly and I thought that was I mean, a, a key line, but it's a line that we're all acutely aware of, uncomfortably aware of. Mm. Right then, on to the 100. Um, we are going to try and, if not answer, at least discuss four questions about the tournament. We're going to try and discuss, is it good? Uh, <laughs> is, it, is it bad? <laughs> is it, no, is, is it good? Is it working? Uh, what is the effect it's having on everything else? And what comes next, I think? Time um, for me to go and get a coffee, I think. <laughs> No, you're, you're no, 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 no. integral to this, Phil. Uh, sure. So we'll start with trying to answer, is it good? A player and a team who are definitely good. Lauren Winfield-Hill, fourth in the run charts in the competition, and Oval Invincibles, who defended their title at Lords. I spoke to Lauren about her campaign, how she's turned her form around after being dropped by England, and her thoughts on the 100 in general. Hi, Lauren. Delighted to have you on the show. First things first, congratulations. You must have had a pretty good night on Saturday. Uh, what did you and the team get up to after winning the final? Um, yeah, we had a great night. Um, to be honest, we were at Lords for ages afterwards. Um, they looked after us really nicely, had drinks in the long room and just chatting to all the sort of the other players from the other teams. Um, and then I've not usually, I'm not used to being in the winner's circle, but it's quite nice when you win because you get um, a bit of an after party arranged for you. So um we headed there afterwards and celebrated and sort of caught up with everybody which was which was good um and yeah and then dusty head the following day nice one uh yeah the team spirit in the camp seemed from the outside really good uh, you had this sort of unique situation where you had sort of four world-class overseas players meaning one had to sit out at any time uh how, how was that handled in the dressing room yeah it was it was really difficult i think I honestly think any other team would have found it more difficult than we seem to do. I actually was speaking to JB about how seamless that that was, really, given the, I guess, the enormity of the decision. Um, 
with the ever-changing captains and the ever-changing team. And I think one thing that the group did really well was just sort of like constantly adapt. And it was like, well, whatever team we play, we can do a job and we can come out with the victory. Um, whereas, you know, in other teams, I feel like that might have been more noise and, you know, um, just throwing you off task a bit, really. I mean, it was tough for Danae, especially that first the first time she sort of sat out. Um, but then credit to her, she'd be, she was really good after that and just sort of got around the group. And I guess you hurt the first, the first time that that news gets passed on. And, but then she quickly sort of turned her head to what, what the team needed, which I think was, was great and, and credit to her for that. Um, but I think on the overseas front, it was one of those things where I feel like a lot of people signed that fourth wild card as a bit of an injury cover, um, which I guess in the Oval's case, it, that was the situation initially, but equally it sort of turned out to be a scenario whereby you could just do matchups and, and what you needed more of and stuff like that. So I think we actually ended up using it to our advantage and it might be something that's used a bit more like that moving forward you know where it's like okay well if we need to play an extra you know all-rounder that can bowl then we go with this if we just need a batter then we go with this person rather than it be as definitive as just an injury cover yeah that makes sense yeah um you had a, a brilliant campaign from a personal point of view you got what 71 out in the opener in a big chase i think you're fourth in the run charts overall averaging 50 uh what, what would you put your form down to um I feel like that's the that's the most common question I've had at the minute. Actually, <laughs> um, I honestly don't think I, I've I've played this way all summer. I think it's just one of those things where it hasn't been in the headlines and for England, so it seems like something significantly changed. Um, but actually, it's just been a real continuation of of sort of how I've been going, like when I've played for England A or domestically. Um, yeah, I think you know I've just I've just really enjoyed my cricket. Um, I've just sort of simplified it. Probably not listened to too much external noise and too many different sort of voices. Or you know, I haven't I haven't set massive goals. I haven't had I haven't chased statistics in terms of even in in play like in a power play or you know anything like that I've just tried to keep it really simple and just get as many as you can as quick as you can and sometimes that's quicker than others and you know sometimes that comes off and sometimes it doesn't but just sort of having that same process each game Um, so I don't think it's something that's necessarily a, a switch that's flicked just for the hundred I do feel like I have played like that a lot this summer um, but it's nice to do it at that level, you know, like it, it is different sort of punching out runs domestically. Um, whereas it was, it's nice to do it sort of in a much more high profile and much more pressurized environment. Yeah. You, you mentioned that it's, it's this summer particularly, I guess maybe what's nice about that is it's come having been what you played last played for England at the end of, of, of the winter. Uh, I guess, did, did you feel you had a, a point to prove? And also, how has the communication been 
with sort of the England setup about what you need to do to win a recall and that sort of thing? Um, no, I don't necessarily. I've honestly really detached from this whole like point to prove scenario because it's just not served me all that well, to be honest. I think I just try too hard when I'm in those scenarios and, um, I, like when I came back from the World Cup, I had a I had a massive meltdown. Um, just bubble life and cricket life and and everything was just all a bit too much to be honest. I just couldn't quite cope with with normal life when I came home. Um, and since then, I've just tried to I just tried to balance myself within cricket a lot better. Um, I've sort of trained, changed the way I train and operate in terms of like, I've always got to do more or, you know, I need to hit millions of balls or whatever and turn my focus more on distracting myself from cricket and spend time with my friends and family and go and do things that I enjoy outside of the game rather than just constantly being consumed by cricket and I need, you know, I'm, I need to do more, I need to do more, I need to hit more balls. Um, so outside of games, I've probably, I've probably actually trained less than I ever have, but trained much more smartly um, and more freely. Um, but yeah, like in terms of like the communication with England, um I guess, I guess you know, until the hundred, I probably didn't have a huge amount of, uh, I guess, evidence that I'm in good nick. I think sometimes, um, sometimes the domestic, the domestic sort of structure, when the England players aren't playing in particular, um, isn't always a measure as to where you sort of where you are in the pecking order internationally. Um, amongst the England team, but I think obviously with with the hundred, it gives you a bit better scope of where you're at. Um, and obviously missing out on the T, I, I was disappointed to miss out on on T20 selection. Um, I won't. I'm certainly not going to hide from the fact that I that, that I was or, or deny the fact that I was disappointed. Um, I haven't actually had conversations. As yet, but I have, I have asked to to have those conversations uh, moving forward to get a little bit of clarity on just, you know, I know I've been out of favour with since the World Cup, but you know, is is the door shut or is the door jarred for now but could open again and and all that sort of stuff really. I guess it's a tricky situation as well because there'll be a new head coach soon, I suppose. So there's a lot of stuff in a. In a bit of limbo, I guess. Uh, I just wanted to ask quickly about one thing you said there. What, what What's your main sort of switch off activity? What, what What do you do when you're getting away from cricket? What's the one thing that's like I'm going to do this and not think about it? If that makes sense. Um, I've just made a real effort to to use my days off with time with, I you know just come home to family, walk my dog, go play golf, get a coffee. I, I I've just sort of like ripped up the script of what I used to do and and do things a bit differently. Um, even just little things like on a game day, I'd be like, oh, you know, I've just got to chill and rest and whatever. Can't do much on a game day. Um, but actually then, like, it's like my mind's just consumed by the game before I get to the ground. Um, so even just changing, like, pre-match and actually 
be busy like you know and you don't need to sit and think about the game before it occurs just go for coffee go do go meet people go meet your friends or your family that are coming to watch or or whatever um yeah I think cricket just got really heavy for me and it just feels really light and really enjoyable again and and that's probably why I've you know I've played closer to my potential this this last little while than I have done previous to that I've got a few questions just about the hundred sort of more generally one one of them kind of related to what you've sort of touching already which is just how much it is is it a lot easier do you feel for any player to sort of make a case for international selection now because of the platform the 100 gives you as you say in the past with domestic cricket you can get all the runs but there's been questions about the quality I think the 100's certainly as good as um you know you've got half the team are internationals aren't they or they're pretty close to playing international cricket I think if you look at like most of the batting orders, people don't don't generally get past five, um, and you've sort of got four or five gun bowlers that do a bulk of the work. So I think the standards certainly um, up there. I think, like you say, just just the fact that you're playing in front of fifteen, twenty thousand live on Sky, um, I guess, creates more pressure than what domestic cricket would do. I think it's no different into county cricket in the men's game. It's one of those things where it's like when all the England players are fit and available, the standard is very good. But obviously you have you have games throughout the year where people have been rested or, you know, there's there's overlap and things like that. So I certainly think the hundred for women's cricket especially has has bridged that gap massively. And how have you found the uh, the almost sort of celebrity aspect of it? The way that, you know, when a game finishes, there will be hundreds of kids there sort of wanting uh, the, an autograph and a photo and that sort of thing, which I guess you might have got for England a few times, but to get that regularity and for that sort of thing, that, that might, is that a new thing that you feel like? Yeah, I certainly feel like the engagement is is a lot. I think that's the thing that I've really loved this year is like, Obviously, we weren't in bubbles and stuff, so you can engage with the crowds. You can engage with even like people that are in your hotels and stuff that are coming to watch the games. Um, you, you know, sign sign stuff for kids and all that sort of all that sort of stuff is it's really it's so important. And I think you know it's something it's part of the game that I always really enjoy because it's like well, I was that I was that little kid at one point. And that's what inspired me was, you know, the cricket. Like I remember watching uh, Headingley when I was a youngster and I loved Alex Stewart because he gave me the time of day and signed up my shirt and my little miniature bat and whatever. Um, and I think, you know, that's what's been really, like, really enjoyable this summer about the 100 is that it feels it feels more... I don't know, it just feels more real, doesn't it? And more authentic and more together with the people who are coming to watch. And like, it's certainly better for a player um, and it's got to be better for the people who are coming to watch as well to be able to to interact with the players a bit more. Mm, yeah, there's been some suggestion from those who sort of aren't fans of the 100, uh, particularly often those who don't like its effect on the men's game, that the same success in the in the women's game could have been achieved by just sort of 
investing in the Kia Super League, I guess. Is, is that something you, you have an opinion on? Um, yeah, I, I don't really believe that to be the case because I think what's been really good for the 100 is that it's like an event, you know, in terms of you've got the double headers and you've got the music and it, it's a real event. There's a genuine atmosphere. I think if you had standalone fixtures with the Super League, um, you know, and even like international cricket, you know, it's it's rare that you get as many people to a women's international T20 50 over um, game as you do to the 100. So, you know, yes, that, that money could have easily benefited the Super League, but I don't think it would have had as big an impact as what the 100s had. Um, I don't know. I even, you know, like my mum's comes to watch me to support me but she's not a cricket nuffy but she loves 100 because she's like well it's like a day out it's a real event you know it's a great atmosphere and um i guess the purists don't like the fact that it is that but attracting new audiences or people who aren't just diehard cricket fans you know like my mom <laughs> um much rather go to a 100 game and and have like a full, a day out and a double header and and all that sort of all the I guess production that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 finally, how does the the quality compare in terms of the actual cricket? Not not just to the the KSLs we've discussed, but to sort of other competitions around the world. Do you think? Yeah, I think the I think the the standards really good. I think a lot of what you know people have say, for example, some of the Aussies that have come over and played, they've found that. You know that just be solely because the crowds are better, that that it feels more more pressurized. Um, I don't think the standards far behind at all in terms of, or even whether it's even behind at all in terms of like big bash comparisons. Um, the crowds are certainly bigger, that's for sure. And I think the other thing in in the women's game, there's so many tight games. Um, well, naturally, that's just pressure, isn't it? And and pressure is creates a, a standard because you know that's the the standard is risen by the amount of pressure that's been applied by the games, and that was certainly a lot of close games. Um, you know, you got bowlers trying to defend very few runs at the back end, or you've got you've got teams that. Are, you know we've had some big chases as well so I think that the standard's been really good I think it's definitely gone up from from last year with the with the boost of more availability for the overseas um and I just think yeah the nature of the shortness of the game creates really close high pressure games Uh, thanks very much for your time Lauren that's great so Trent Rocket won the men's title over Invincibles defended their title in the women's competition uh Rockets won that final map without anyone getting to to twenty. Uh, what what makes them good as a team? Is it all Andy Flower? Is it just Milan and Hales being brilliant at the top of the order? What what is it that makes them good? Well, I think that's th- those are the two big things. I think um, Hales and Milan scored about half their runs off the bat over the course of the competition. And when you have two of the best openers in the country and they're both in form, um, that's obviously going to be very helpful, particularly when they sort of complement each other pretty nicely, as as Hales and Milan seem to. Um, I think they're a, they're a pretty tough pair to bowl at. And uh, yeah, then the, in the final, both of them obviously, well, I think Milan top scored with 19 at a, a runner ball. But um, 
it's failed compared to their previous efforts in the competition. But um, Andy Flower sort of followed his teams in since he became a, a coach in franchise leagues have followed a very similar blueprint where he's stacked them full of all-rounders, um, has lent very heavily on left-right combinations throughout the order. So you have weird stuff like Colin Munro came in at six in one game because Milan stayed in longer and they needed right-handers. Um, and he also, yeah, so he ends up with teams with very long batting lineups and a lot of bowling options, which um, sort of inherently seems pretty good. There's a lot of variety in the attack. Um, even when they lost, they, they've sort of had Shamsi and Rashid Khan sharing one spot um, in the competition, but both of those guys dropped out for the final. Um, Rashid was at the Asia Cup and Shamsi was left early for the CPL, which I suppose um, it would come on to the point about overseas availability, but then they had Matt Carter come in off the bench. and a lot Biggest of... feet I've ever seen, Matt Carter. He's a big guy, isn't he? Clown um, feet, classic clown big feet. Big head. Yeah. yeah he's, he's... Quite an um, intimidating stare. Yeah, well. there's yeah, there's a kind of dead eyedness. There's a thousand that, yard, uh, yeah, Nam stalwart sort of stare. To he him, loves yeah. shooting. He said in his cricketer's who's who sure. profile, which didn't come as as a great surprise. I think he's talking about animals, uh, but <laughs> it's got a full metal jacket element to it for and me. For some reason, as well, on the TV graphics when they had the the lineups for the teams, they had everyone's like a full head, and for him, it was just like eyes upwards for some reason. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, Sam Cook, yeah. the most underrated cricketer in on God's earth. Sam Cook. I think that's Paul Walter, isn't it? But uh, Tall Paul. Yeah, it's definitely an Essex player. Pick your Essex player. Please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they were a really good side. Um, and I think probably the right winners as well. There was a sort of weird uh, clubby quality to Manchester Originals throughout the whole thing where they lost all the good players. Then Paul Walter got the beers in and nominated himself as social, social secretary and they kept on winning, um, which was sort of a nice story in a sense. But then with the, the weirdness of the hundred is that there's very few there's very little coverage of the cricket itself and there's a lot of people criticizing the quality and there's a lot of people looking at the bigger picture all the time as we're about to do um and i think when you have a nice story like that but no one's really writing the story and they're instead looking at it as hang on is josh little really the best bowler in the in the world um it, it probably made more sense or felt like a more fitting winner for Trent Rockets, who were clearly the best team rather than the sort of feel-good story who came up on the outside. But um, no, no, one was really, no one was really telling it. Yeah, so this is the question I have about whether the 100 is good, is how much is it sport really and how much is it entertainment? I think we should talk about, I think Welsh Fire maybe sum this up because obviously they've been very, very bad this year and last year. And partly, I mean, that, that isn't an, an issue from an entertainment point of view if you have one team who are just going to lose all their games and not get very close that is bad but also kind of apart from that who whose job is it to say Welsh Fire have been bad therefore lots of things need to change maybe Gary Kirsten needs to go there needs to be repercussions for this does anyone care that someone at the ECB and if there isn't someone what does that mean for it as sort of a sporting contest if it's kind of like a bit shrug your shoulders a bit it's kind of bad for the, the kids who are coming in, but there's not much beyond that. It's a, it's a good question, that, actually. So so as I understand it, basically, I, I was digging around working out what was going to happen with Gary Kirsten. Because What's the jeopardy? He has had a, he's had a, you know, they, I think they won their first two games last year, thanks to Bearstow, and then they won one in the rest of the comp, and then they've lost everything this year. So he's had a, a pretty ter- terrible time as coach. And I was digging around trying to work out if he were to lose his job, who would actually be the person, you know, who would be pulling the trigger on the shotgun. Um, and from what I can tell, basically each of the hundred teams, because they're, they're owned by the ECB effectively, but then delegated to these sort of uh, team boards that no one really understands, there is a represent a sort of non-exec board level uh, director from each of the the teams involved. So Somerset, Gloucestershire, and Glamorgan. Somerset, by the way, probably won't watch, but to be quite bad, um, and it's sort of ironically. 
Um, but I think so. Mark Wallace, who's the director of cricket or general manager or something along those lines um, at Welsh Five, would be the man making those decisions. And probably as a sort of you know proud proud Glamorgan man, um, would want Welsh Five to do pretty well and would have our best interests at heart. But it's difficult then to know, you know, if if maybe Wallace has been do, has been the guy who's at fault because no one's really sure how how this all works. And in that case, do the ECB then fire him and the coach, or do they keep the coach and? fire Wallace how, how does it all work well, the be fire themselves yeah well exactly and and, <laughs> and then you know at what point if Welsh Fire are terrible for two more years do the ECB sort of fall on their sword and say actually maybe cricket in Cardiff doesn't work there's no crowds the team's terrible we'll just move it to Bristol and I can't really see that happening next year for example or the year after but there probably does need to come a time where there's some kind of jeopardy involved for a team because I don't know. It, it, I don't think it helps the league at all to have a terrible team. I suppose the the flip side of it is that they can have a big clear out. They'll have the first pick in the draft, and you know if they if they get some some picks right or whatever, then you know we saw from London Spirit this year, you can turn turn it around pretty quickly. Especially if you happen to get a couple of wins at the start of the competition, there is randomness in short form cricket. Um, then suddenly, you know, they might come mid table next year, and we wonder what the fuss was all about. Do you think it kind of sums up the inauthenticity of the whole thing? that we're talking about should this team even exist because you know in sport there are bad teams bad teams make sport Barney Rone touched on this in the column he wrote saying Welsh Fire being rubbish is about the best thing about the 100 because at least it's a sporting story that we can be familiar with rather than pretending that the Trent Rockets fans are you know delighted well there aren't that many Trent Rockets fans let's be honest should they not just be allowed to be bad is that not just how leagues develop and at some point they won't be bad and that will be a story because they're no longer bad I that 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 feels fine to me uh and the fact that it isn't doesn't sit well with a lot of people kind of sums up that this is such a kind of construct rather than uh a kind of a, a, a league in the raw that you know that they they've done things badly which they could do better and then become a better team that that seems fine to me i think that's probably right and i think also it's it, it's um yeah it, it's probably quite fitting that as well as far as well because of the fact that they're playing at this venue that is quite unusual but because of the fact Glamorgan have done very badly in the blast they've not picked any Glamorgan players because there's no standouts and they I think they only had two players involved in the whole competition um so they've not really got anyone who has the the knowledge of the or the you know the home ground advantage of having played 50 games at Sapphire Gardens and done well because there aren't really any of those players uh the crowds have been pretty poor compared to the rest of the competition and I think people to be honest have probably stayed away partly because towards the end of the competition because of the fact they'd seen what had happened and there was no jeopardy on the, the final few games um and if it, it feels like Welsh Fire was always sort of the outlier them being the I suppose the, the probably the least obvious choice of a venue as well um out of the out of the eight I would say there was probably a stronger case uh, a perfectly strong case to share that team around between maybe hosted at Bristol or maybe have a few games at Bristol, a few games in Wales and call them Western or something like that. Um, but instead they, they sort of doubled down on the Welsh thing, had no Welsh players, had no Glamorgan players and have been terrible. And they do seem, I, I would say just, you know, it, it's probably quite lazy analysis, but they seem the least sort of cohesive team and the most artificial team out of the eight, I would say. Um I think the flip side to this is maybe in the in the women's competition where you have Old Invincibles and Southern Brave are both so clearly so much better than the other teams. I think one question I kind of have is how have they built such good teams? I mean, it's supposed to be sort of a, a, a draft system that meant all the teams would be broadly equal and that, that kind of hasn't happened. You look down both of you like not at all surprised that they have contested both finals. Um, and in a similar way to Welsh Fire, but 
is, is how good they are an issue? Will people be turned off if it's those two in the final every year? Or is that just, as Joe says, like, maybe in English sport as well, we're a bit more open to this. We like teams actually building up dominance over several years and we like that to mean something the next year and the year after as well, which is different to other countries where they sort of like it just to be not 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 random but to there be more of a, a level playing field and the field to be leveled between seasons yeah I, I personally I don't think it's a massive problem I think it you know actually last year it was quite helpful in a way that Southern Brave who people tip pre-tournament to do well ended up winning it because people could say oh Southern Brave they're really good they're the team with you know the the gun bowling attack or whatever it was um, and I felt like that was a good sort of way for people to identify with the team early on where they knew who they were they thought they were going to be good and they ended up being good and they were proven right and it sort of helped helps the tournament stand on its own feet because I don't think a lot of people would have a strong idea about what northern superchargers are like for example and they wouldn't have a they wouldn't say oh they're the team that do this they would just say that they're playing purple um I think in the the women's comp I wouldn't be surprised I think there's been a few whispers around having a sort of more uh, more sort of open draft style system so making it closer to the men's in terms of how it's done because it's very much been um, you know under the table recruitment type stuff where the salaries are published but and people directly negotiate with players but um, you know it, it, rather than you saying I, I'm, I'm up for grab someone come and get me it's much more speaking to regional directors that sort of thing um, and clearly if you look at the Southern Brave team there's a huge crossover between the Southern Brave team and the Southern Vipers team and there's a big draw to play, you know, in London. So Oval Invincibles have done well and under your coach that you know already and you live nearby. So that's why Southern Brave have done well. It feels like um, in terms of, I, I, I don't know whether that's a massive problem personally. I think that's absolutely fine if there are good teams. Um, and things can change so quickly, right? I remember actually this time last year getting an email in from a uh, listener saying, is the fact that Southern Brave are so dominant in the men's competition a problem? Are they just going to win it every year? Mm. And, you know, what, they were one off one off what, bottom, were they? Or yeah, I think bottom? they finished seventh, yeah. So, you know, these things change very, very quickly in T20. Um, I, I, I agree. I think they could do it a bit. I, I think a more transparent recruitment process would, would definitely be beneficial um, just for the whole kind of validity of the tournament, really. Um, but, yeah, I, I like having good teams. And, you know, if someone beats them, then it's an upset. And we know it's an upset. I think that's that's a nice narrative to have. Yeah, yeah and, and relatedly, if players are coming and going constantly, as we've seen this year, which is problematic, if you have players of the quality of Shamsi and Rashid Khan, albeit one plays for his country, fine, that should obviously take precedence, but the other one chooses to go and play in another equivalent domestic tournament. And if we've seen many players over the first two years of the tournament saying thanks but no thanks... Uh, then you're going to get that constant flux anyway, right, between between one side and another. And so patterns of supremacy are going to be harder and harder to, to map out over a period of time because the the makeup of the teams are going to be so, so randomised. Um, you know, that in itself is obviously problematic. In an ideal world, the ECB would be able to convince the players from Stokes and Bairstow to Topley to Shamsi that this is... This is a key part of your season well at the moment the sense is it's hard to shake that players aren't really prioritizing the tournament um certainly certain players if they think that they can get away with not playing in it then that's what they're going to do um and in the end I th not in the end but i think one of the key things going forward will be can they hold on to the quality can they hold on can they make make this a, a magnet for, for for quality around the world and the jury i would say has got to be out on that right well, I thought that watching the men's final, uh, 
looking at the sides beforehand, looking at the game, the way the game played out, uh, an exciting finale. I thought it just seemed like a decent blast game, really. I didn't. I don't think that Trent Rocket side without Rashid Khan or Shamsi. Look, I think that would be a good game against Knots, really, a full strength Knots side. I know they have crossovers, so that wouldn't really work. But and that for me, that's fine. But it, that they promised so much more that I watched that final, even though it was exciting at the end. I don't, I think that was almost exciting through lack of quality it, it, rather than quality. It was almost quality. parodic, wasn't it, that you have Gleeson running into Gregory in the in the finale of this game on a stodgy pitch at Lords. You know, these two kind of archetypes of oh, county flag cricket. bearers for the blast, right? Yeah. They? They yeah, made that's name it, that. yeah. I thought it felt quite sort of end of season CB40 final, the yeah. vibe of that game and yeah. the, at the end. It was very, you know, pretty tough pitch, quite cold outside in September, all this stuff. And, you know, every, every boundary, suddenly a huge release of pressure because of the fact that rates sort of climbing but not climbing very high yeah within within all of the understandable skepticism and it's very very hard to watch that game and keep your cynicism at the door even then and and this can apply when you're walking through a park on a sunday afternoon and you see a game of cricket and you happen to catch you don't know who's playing but you see the score scoreboard and you say all right they need 60 off 48 and they've got six weeks in that oh, i might sit down and watch this and then suddenly you're into the game I was really into that game, despite not giving a toss who won or lost. And also the sense, by the way, which is problematic in itself. Not sure how much the players really cared either. I, I, there was there was a a sense of mild jeopardy, but nothing more than that. I don't think you bleed for your Trent Rockets in the way that you bleed for Knots or whichever club it is that you've been reared through and brought up on and so on and so on i saw this take after the final and i i disagree with it in terms of the body language of the players and what players have said throughout the competition and obviously you know they're not going to be you know if you've got someone who's being paid 125k for eight games he's not going to lay into the tournament i understand that that but i do think you know in the same way that lancashire were gutted after losing the blast and you know, it had to be dragged off the pitch or whatever. It, it kind of felt the same with Manchester Originals. Gleeson sort of sunk down to his haunches. Laurie Evans gave this big sort of rousing team talk in the huddle where he said, look, guys, this doesn't define us. We'll come back stronger next year. And obviously some of them might not be there next year because that's the nature of the tournament. But I I, I didn't really feel that, that there was somehow a huge difference between that and any given blast final where I think the, the team that won were pretty happy and started celebrating and the dugout all rushed on and they lifted the trophy and I think the team that lost were pretty gutted about it and maybe the maybe the scars won't last as long for Manchester Originals in the final compared to what they did in Lancashire yeah. in the blast but I think I do still think the players care yeah okay okay I, I don't dispute any of that I just that comparison though if you're playing for Lancashire then you know that there's many many thousands of people who are invested in that result mm. and Lancashire despite being a great white ball side of 1-1 white ball tournament in the 21st century so you have all of that history as well and then of course you have the storied history going even further back and then you know that you are representing a whole region of proud great cricket and then if you don't don't win that game you don't go over the line then surely that's a deeper, more scarring experience. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah. And I, I think also there is a there is maybe a problem for the competition in terms of the lack of scrutiny on bad performances. Right, so I think, right. you know, for example, Welsh Fire lost, there was not a lot of stuff other than the occasional sort of satirical piece like the one one in The Guardian you mentioned saying, here's why Welsh Fire were so bad this year. There was just a lot of, oh, right, Welsh Fire are terrible. Not a lot of, you know, Tom Banton and Joe Clark were two of the b- biggest picks in the draft and didn't score a run between them. Yeah. Yeah, and just to sorry to round up that point, I was still gripped by the game. Yeah. Ridiculous as it is, I was still gripped by the game, um, and intrigued by how this this slightly shambolic 
attempt at a, a top class game of cricket was going to play out. I've got two last things on the on the final and then on the quality overall. And so one on the final, we've all mentioned the pitch, uh, and it wasn't a great pitch. And Lords actually has produced a few sort of dud pitches in a few different ways over the last few years. So that's something to keep an eye on. But Joe, you watched the final with your friends, and I wondered what they made of it, having not been that into cricket beforehand and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I was watching, uh, I was around my mates for barbecue and needed to watch this for, you know, because I wanted to and professional reasons. Um, and <laughs> so I basically made two wait, two mates who don't watch cricket at all to w- watch the final. Uh, one comes to a few T20s here in, just to get pissed in the office, really. And another pays no attention whatsoever. So I was quite interested what their take would be on it. And one said... They're both related to the kind of commentary, actually. What And I'll be watching on the BBC, it's important to add. So one said there was constant talk about the Trent Rockets fans being kind of in dreamland and all this kind of stuff. And he was just like, well, that, how, how can they be? They they didn't exist a year and a half ago. Do, what, what is this thing? Um, and I think that that was a concern that people had. And it was interesting. That was the first thing he picked up on. The other one who watched, he watched is the one who watches a tiny bit of cricket with me every now and again, was... I think found the BBC coverage patronising and dumbed down to points. So he was saying, I want to hear about seam and spin and stuff, which he doesn't really understand, but he knows it's an interesting thing about the game, which kind of helps to reveal the game. And it, it really struck me, the BBC particularly, and I think they've kind of pigeonholed themselves in a quite uncomfortable way here, where they're just relentlessly asking each other who's winning. And that's such a boring question in cricket. And anyone who follows cricket knows that's not a very simple question to answer anyway. And just watch it unfold. So I, I've... I find that grating, but I thought it was interesting that someone who doesn't even follow cricket thought that it was being spoon-fed in a way that actually wasn't particularly appealing. And you're losing some of the, the mysteries which actually, which actually bring people into the game rather than put them off. I thought Tamar Mills was an interesting example. He's a really good commentator. He's much he's much better on Sky. There was one point where he started talking about something a bit technical and then pulled himself back because I think they've been given instructions not to go that way. And I, I think that's a mistake. Um, and... Yeah, I think they should give their audience a bit more credit, really. If they want people to actually know cricket for what it is and stay with the game, then you've got to show them what it is. Yeah, I, I echo that. And also, let's be real about it. This is this is the final of a tournament. And famously, people are rather polarising on it. But it's it's Saturday night, BBC Sport. And so a lot of the people who are going to be watching that are going to be people who know the game relatively well anyway, right? And it's, we're kidding ourselves if we think there's just these hordes of newbies around the block. The vast majority of people will be watching that game, whatever the numbers are. Um, they will be people who have at least some handle on a game of cricket. Because otherwise, you'd be doing something else with your Saturday night. Um, I think you're absolutely right with that, Joe. One or two things that struck me about their coverage, the BBC's coverage as well. I know that they pushed hard to have the player mics. And I think there was a bit... It was some pushback elsewhere in in the whole the whole setup, but I know the BBC wanted that quite hard, and thought Tom Lamanby came across brilliantly in in the field, and actually really added something to the to the the, the show by getting a sense uh, of the tension out there on the pitch, but also his particularly unique way of fielding as well. I don't know if you caught that, but he he even when he's at deep cover, he's he's on he's on the angle. Did you catch this, Joe? So he's he's on the angle like a kind of baseball pitcher, but he's obviously fielding. And he feels like it gives him an extra half a yard to attack the ball. So he's already on that front foot rather than just being square on. And he learned that from Chris Jordan and so on. And he's a brilliant fielder, Lamanby. But he described the atmosphere, the, the, the tension building and so on. I, th- I thought that really added something to it. Yeah. 
and for me as like a sports like maybe this is me as a sports nerd and that's what gets me interested but with other sports that i don't follow too much like say with with baseball i don't know anything about it but actually what will drag me into it like to look finding out a bit more is seeing like a weird technical thing that someone is doing that i like that is like oh wow that's cool like there was a thing that cameron ponsby who's been in the podcast before noted that uh, i can't remember which of the teams but were doing when alice capsi was batting to spin uh so they had because obviously you have the fielders outside the ring they had this the fielder stationed at what a cover i think right on the ring but they knew that alice capsi liked to come down and sort of chip over the top not sort of go for six but try and chip it in run two so so as soon as the ball was bowled the, the field at that point turned and started running to try and uh, get the ball back and uh, and that's the kind of thing i think that like if you notice that and point it out and then explain why that's all happening in terms of what the bowler's doing, what the batter's doing, what the fielder's doing, why the fielder can't just start out there. That's the kind of thing that will get someone actually into the minutiae of the game and actually make them go, okay, there's lots more going on here rather than just someone's trying to hit it as hard as possible and they're trying to, you know, stop them from doing that sort of thing. Yeah, indeed. I think there was a sense that they were almost underselling it a little bit, almost apologising for its, its complexities. Um, and you should be embracing those things. I think um, it, it it did make a it did show you just how how polished. And you'd expect this that Sky's coverage would be polished compared to the BBC's, which is a different kind of broadcast and obviously a more uh, a more raw and and developing show. Um, but the, the the fact that NASA looked down the lens after the final game and said there is an element of second season syndrome to this, and that while the women's game has been uniformly great. There are some issues around some of the things that we're talking about here, about player retention, about the lack of close games, about some of the intensity and the quality and so on and so on. Uh, there was a lack of that journalistic rigour, I thought, on the BBC, and, and, and perhaps they can address that maybe next year. It was actually, now I think about it, it was crystallised by the interview that they did with Milan afterwards, where they did it with a chap called Chris Hughes, I think he's called. She's like a lovely fella. Um, but it was, they just spoke about Ryan Gosling for 20 seconds. Too much Ryan Gosling. I want to know that he's leading run scorer in the tournament. England's number three, you know, a world-class short format player. I wanted to, I wanted a journalist to ask him some questions. Um, uh, and again, it was just, it seemed to be indicative of a slightly infantile approach. Mm. Says you'll come and get me, please. <laughs> oh, I mean, she knows. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Uh, right, I think that's quite enough on is it good. Uh, I think the next sections will be shorter, I imagine. Uh, on is it working, I think there were some stats that came out on viewership, attendances, etc. They were all roughly equal to 2022. A few small drops here, a few big rises there. I think the shorter women's competition probably does play into that, which means you probably can't say it's a fair comparison. And the one big jump was in the average attendance of women's games. We had a question from Paul Hudson who mentioned that NASA... Uh, sort of discussion as you said phil uh and he asks do you think the women's hundred could have been successful on its own or could continue to be successful if the men's hundred dies or are the two do they have to be just tied together do you think i think that well i suppose that the precedent is probably the wbbl in australia which has gone from something similar where you had a lot of double header games to a standalone tournament at the beginning of the summer but the bbl is just so much more established than the hundred is currently personally i could 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 you have done the you know this is the classic sort of counterfactual is you know could we just have funded the KSL 
and realistically i think that the 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 fact that those competitions are interlinked and you know much as much as we sort of you know there aren't very many trent rockets ultras there weren't a lot of manchester originals fans booking their last minute coach from southampton to london on the night um but people at home venues have got behind the teams to a certain extent and our fans of the teams do come in for the women's game and watch the women's game when they can after work if if, if that's what it is um i think the alignment is a crucial thing and the, the obvious the stat that stood out for me um during the final was I, I actually thought the women's final was was by no means the best game of the competition the pitch didn't help um and and i think your point about lords is right you know um i, I wouldn't have the 100 finals day at lords the, there's a reason the blast finals day has never been there and um i think saturday showed why but there were 20,000 at that game and i think the whole ksl in 2019 had 27,000 there and obviously there's a huge difference in the amount of marketing and publicity but you know, a 34-game tournament had that, and one single game, and this one had the other. And it's yeah, I, I think they're chalk and cheese. And yeah, I think it, it, it. Maybe you'll get to a point where the competition split off, and then maybe you can have the conversation about well, do we actually need the men's competition? But I think um, the two at the moment need each other. The men, we saw it at the start of the season. The men's comp was, I thought, a lesser thing because of the fact that you know. If, if there's not really much of a buzz or an atmosphere until 60 balls into the men's game, then you're actually relying on it being a close finish for there to be any kind of atmosphere in the run chase. Because, you know, I went to the, the opening night at the Aegeus Bowl, which sort of famously slow to fill up because there's a bottleneck and it's hard to get to and all that sort of thing. And, you know, it was 20 for three after the power play and the game was completely dead. And there was a bit of a buzz in the run chase when Vince was scoring some runs because there always is. But that was about it, really. It was, you know, there, there was, was not a lot of agony that first game watching yeah. that on oh, TV. It was tough. Yeah, it was yeah. a tough, tough watch. But, but then day two, you came here. Yeah. You know, preponderance of internationals and a, and a really good game of yeah. cricket but in the London you, Derby. I think if you'd had the women's game before the, sure. the first game, then at least you would have had people at least, you know, vaguely excited by the fact the team was taking wickets in the first innings, which you just didn't on the first night. Yeah. So I think they need each other at this point in, the, in their evolution. Mm. Uh, Joe, do we yet know what it looks like for the 100 to be a success? Does this, you know, extended TV deal, I think, does that mean it already is? Or is it only going to be in, what, in 20 years when you have someone opening the batting for England and Nash's test who says they were a child of the 2021 summer or whatever it is how what 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 does it mean for the 100 to work basically well given the targets are around participation future proofing the game securing its financial future i don't see how we can possibly know other than get little glimpses for quite a long period of time really i think what we'll see before whether we before we know that the 100 is success i think we'll see the impact on county cricket and the rest of cricket and for a lot of people, that will mean that it's a failure immediately. Whether it achieves its goals or not, if the rest of county cricket suffers, for a lot of cricket fans, that, that means it's it's failed. The ECB might well see it differently. As ever with 100, it depends on your perspective. But yeah, in short, I don't, I don't think we'll know for quite quite a long time if it's if it's achieved its aims. Mm, okay, well, should we, should we move on to, to county cricket then? Um, before we get on to the 100's effect on county cricket... We had the One Day Cup finalists confirmed this week. Both semis were excellent games, with Lancashire beating Sussex after a century from Dane Villas helped them recover from 67 for 5, and Kent ending Hampshire's hopes of a treble. Darren Stevens hitting 84 or 65 to take them from 181 for 5 to a three wicket win, chasing 311. Joe spoke to the 46 year old about his One Day Cup campaign, his thoughts on the 100, and whether he'll be back for one more go round the county circuit next season. Let's start with the Royal London semi-final, uh, 84 not out from 65 balls to see Kent home against Hampshire. There was plenty of yeah. work to do when you 
when you came in there. Did, did you always feel like you had that chase under control? Uh, not, no, not quite, mate. Look, geez, I remember Grant Stewart coming with me. We'd lost Finch, who played nicely. Yeah, Grant came in, and I remember him getting to 10 pretty quickly. And I looked up at the board, and I was not off 12 balls. So it was a little bit, but I knew, I, I just knew if we took it deep, then, um, you know, they had a few young lads on that team with a couple of experienced lads. But I knew if we just took it down to the last couple of overs, we'd have a chance. It was only a few weeks ago that you picked up that calf injury and it, it looked as though you might not have an opportunity to play for Kent again. Were you concerned at any stage that might be the case? Was it touch and go? Uh, when I first did it, I'd never done a calf. You know, I've done, I've had niggles. I've been, to be fair, touch wood, I've been very um, lucky with injuries over my career and um, I've never actually, you know, I've never torn a hammy or a calf or a quad or I've done a groin back in 07, uh, but other than that, yeah, I've been really lucky. So when I did do my calf, you know, I wasn't sure what was going on. It didn't feel right. A little clip off my hip took for one. And then I felt like a little pop in my in my calf. So it was like, I, you know, I thought that was it. I thought I'd rip my calf off. And, um, but apparently I was just carrying on like a, a softie. Um, <laughs> but no, luckily it was only a grade one. So, you know, the, the physio said, Dan, um, he said it would probably be about four weeks. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, we'll see how the first few days go. And I was on crutches for the second day. At the, uh, I, I did it on the Thursday. And on the Saturday, I had my four-year-old's birthday party at home. So we had about 50 people around. And there was like, I was meant to be doing the Barbie. I was meant to be running games. Literally, I was sitting on the sofa with my feet up. So I wasn't allowed to do anything. Uh, but then on the Monday, I was out. I was off the crutches and I was walking around. And it just felt like a tight calf. Um, and then I went to see Dan again and he was pretty surprised. Um, and then I think within a couple more days, we were loading it up in the gym and um, a few more days after that, we were running. So, um, you know, maybe these old bones and muscles repair a bit quicker than uh, we were expecting. Yeah, because you bowled 10 overs in that Hampshire game as well. You, you're feeling all right after, after that? No, that, no. Yeah, issue. no. Well, I was at the, my next game back was this, uh, the Leicester game. Um, for the quarters, no, 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 no. I played the uh, Lanks game Lanks, um, yeah. at home last game, and I bowled five overs there, and it just it, it, it was okay. I was more concerned running between the wickets, but um, but that I got through that okay, and then went to Leicester a couple of days later, and the the, the physio and the coaches were a bit concerned because it was like pretty too pretty soon anyway coming back from the the injury, but playing two games like of that intensity back to back sort of thing. But then ended up bowling 10 straight. <laughs> um, but no, it was all good. That was all good. And then um, obviously the, you know, getting through to the, the the semi and then obviously the way we did it. And yeah, it was, it was an emotional day and it was uh, an emotional few days after that, actually. A um, bit of a come down. And um, luckily I was sitting on a beach in the Isle of Wight for four days. But nice. Yeah, we... Um, we went over, we got a ferry over that night. So we, was, we booked the week, um, not thinking that we'd, you know, the way we'd been going in the tournament, not thinking we'd be uh, getting through to the knockout stages. Uh, so we booked a week away in the Isle of Wight with a couple of friends and their kids and stuff. So, um, but yeah, we missed two days of that, obviously, because of the semi. And then we got a ferry over from Portsmouth on the Tuesday night at 10 o'clock. So it was actually really nice, pretty relaxed, you know, Quite a few uh, friends and family around. My agent was down, Jason, and um, yeah, it was pretty chilled. And then we got away for a couple of days. It was nice. 
you're now averaging 109 with the bat in the Royal London Cup this summer. You've obviously played crucial knots in the last three games. Kent announced a month ago that they wouldn't be giving you a new deal. Any chance of another U-turn, another one-year deal, or is or is that done now? In my eyes, um, you know, I just I feel like I'm playing as well as I have done. You know, I feel like the ball's coming out nice. Uh, I've not picked up wickets, but basically my job's been going for no run. No, my job's to go for no runs in the the white ball stuff. So you know, I've been doing that nicely. And then obviously, you know, getting us over the line in crucial games and situations, and you know that I'm doing that still. So in my eyes, I, I want to keep playing. You know, my my body feels good. I was a little bit concerned, obviously, with this calf injury, and I thought. You know, all my friends that I've spoke to and all players and stuff, they're like, oh, they never go away. They always come back and, you know, you play a game and then you pop it again. And, and I don't know. I've not I don't, I've not even touched wood. I've not felt it once since um, in any of the games that I've come back in. So, fingers crossed we've parked that and that's gone. Um, and I just keep performing uh, and doing well. You know, fortunately, this, you know, the final looks like it's going to be my last game for Kent. You know, I was a bit... I put my... my my name in the hat for the four-day stuff starting today, but, you know, I didn't even get in the squad. Right. Have you started speaking to other counties yet? Yeah, yeah. We've, uh, I had, uh, actually the day, uh, the day my announcement came out, I had a couple of calls from players, uh, friends actually, obviously, um, condolences and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, what are you thinking of doing? And I was like, I really want to keep playing. And, um, and they're like, right, look, we'd love to have you, uh, but look, let's just see how things get. Well, I, I was. I wanted to ask you about the Royal London Cup in sort of more general terms. This is obviously the yeah. second season. It's essentially been the undercard to the hundreds. Being part of it, does it feel like there's a buzz around the tournament, or does it feel like it's taking place in the background? Hundred percent, mate. Yeah, I, I think it's been. Um, I think it's been a good tournament. I think yeah. there's been a lot of buzz. You know, I played in it last year and. Um, you know, it wasn't so, but obviously the limelight of the hundred sort of took place, and you know, I feel that the hundred sort of lost its its um, its buzz this year. And I, I don't know, I don't know if because there was a lot of close games and a lot of runs scored, and in the in the Royal London that it sort of um, it took a like a, a like a high step. I don't know. It was um, it was really good to play and a lot of buzz. Uh, crowds were good actually uh, especially mm. in the you know the, the quarter and the semi they were great but um, I feel like all year it's been really good the boys have been up for it as well um, and I think the standard's been really good it's good to see some young lads coming through but also there's a lot of senior lads still playing Yeah it got described as a development competition by the ECB which maybe wasn't the smartest yeah. way of going about it and obviously upset some county supporters but it does seem to be doing that to an extent and that young players are getting the chance to impress and it's being set yeah. up first team opportunities. I wondered, are there any players that maybe you weren't that familiar with at the start of the competition who, who've jumped out and impressed you? That you've um, you know, I quite like. We've signed this lad Joey Everson from Knotts. Yeah. Um, you know, there's something there. Obviously, you know, they've obviously seen something in him, but um, you know, I've not seen enough of his bowling. I think he's a little bit quirky with his bowling. So I think you know, he'll, he'll learn and he'll pick up wickets along the way and. Uh, but he's bang. I think he looks pretty natural. He reminds me a bit of a um, uh, who's the opening, but Watson, um, Shane, Shane Watson, Shane Watson from yeah. Australia. You know, a bit lungy on the front foot, but a really good puller and a cutter. It's well strong down the down the ground. So, I, you know, and uh, he, you know, we'd not signed him as an opening bat, and then 
there was a couple of niggles and um, we needed an opening bat and we chucked it in and it went off and got 100 against Glamorgan mm. in that one day. So maybe they've found something there with him. Yeah. Um, you know, I think he's a nice player. And then more generally looking at county cricket as a whole, it's obviously a delicate time at the moment that that high performance review is underway. Lots of sort of traditional supporter base aren't happy with the 100 dominating the, the middle of the summer like it has done. As someone who probably knows county cricket better than anyone uh, at the moment, what, what are your thoughts on like the overall health of county cricket? Do you feel, do you have concerns around the way? Uh, yeah, we, I've, I've spoke about this a little bit over the, uh, over the last few years, obviously lockdown and all that sort of stuff. And you do a lot of podcasts and, and um, for me, it's about what, the ECB in England want to prioritise. So, mm-hmm. you know, for years we were a poor white ball side um, and we were a really good test side, but they were prioritising test cricket. Um, and then over the last however many years, winning the World Cup, the build-up to that, um, we prioritised white ball cricket. So test cricket sort of had a bit of a stumbling block. Um, so it's, it, it's it's whichever way they want to go. And I know, I know Keezy very well. Um, and, um, you know, he's all for... Uh, making our test side as strong as possible. So, you know, I'm, I'm guessing we'll see a bit of a change where there'll be more test cricket in the penultimate part of the year. So, for instance, this year, you know, there was this test series against South Africa. How many four-day games were there for the lads to play in before the test series? Yeah. You know, they've jumped straight from white ball cricket to um, 2020 cricket, straight into test cricket, which is, you know, you can't do that. If you're going to be successful, you just can't. A successful test team you, or county team you can't you just can't do it you gotta you gotta play county cricket in the middle of the summer so i think we'll see a bit of a change there and it wouldn't even surprise me if there's test cricket throughout the um uh the 2020 next year and the 100 i think they might mix it up but or have it the 2020 a little bit earlier yeah um well the white ball stuff's been quite interesting isn't it the 50 over what they're going to do with that um because they're you know is that is it going to be fifty over forevermore? In you know, is it going to be a fifty over World Cup, uh, or are they going to change it? Will they bring it down to forty overs or forty five overs? Who knows? Um, looking back over my years, I think the forty over comp was probably the best comp I've played in. Um, as much as you know, this year's been great in the fifty, um, but actually, I don't know. I just yeah, I feel that it it was a little bit more. There was no real pause in the game. It was like constantly, you know, it was always going and, and the intensity was always high where you feel like, you know, 50 over cricket, I suppose, you, people are looking at it and go, actually, well, it's a skill to do it, to knock it around for another 10 overs. But, you know, the way the way cricket's going, it's it's all about, you know, foot down and, um, you know, don't stop. Um, you know, it's all about run rates going up and... Um, you know, you look at Test cricket now. The way uh, the old baseball and all that sort of stuff is going, mm. it's you know they're going at four, five, and over in Test cricket. It's just bonkers. Mm. Um, so where's you know if you I think if you took you scrapped the fifty over and brought it down to forty over, come I think you know well, I could, you could see some massive scores. Um, the the uh, how the intensity is going in white ball cricket. Yeah, and and the hundred in general. Um... Are you concerned about the impact it's it's having on counting cricket and may continue to have in the future? I think it'll be what it'll be. Um, it, it it might be 
it might be amazing and it might kick off. But, you know, last year was, there was a high, big buzz about it. I, I couldn't really get to terms, like come to terms with it. Uh, my boys love it. I've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and like they, they play the hundred in the garden every day. They've got the other little app that they put the scores in on their phone. And, um, you know, I think, um, but this year, I don't know, there just wasn't that much. It, there didn't seem like a like big hype about it and much of a buzz. Mm. Um, so I don't know, you know, it could fade out. Five years, mate, might be gone, who knows? Um, or... I don't know. They might they might change it up next year somehow and try and spice it up again. And um, but what, actually, one thing I will say about it, um, and I, and if it just, I'm sure it's obviously this another three years left of it uh, as a contract. But um, what they need to do is they need to find a way of these boys that are being picked and play like not playing and sitting on the sidelines. For instance, I use Jack, good mate of mine, Jack Leaning, um, you know, playing for Kent now. He's going into this game today. He's had five weeks sitting on his backside. Mm. You know, unfortunately, obviously, you know, he was hoping to play and we want him to play. And but he's not playing any cricket. He's had a few throws in the nets, and when he has, is if he's going to play, he's going to be trying to hit it out the ground for ball one. So that's all he's been practicing. So it's like, you know, there, there should be some form of if they've got a few days off, no cricket. Well, you know, why can't they come back to their county and play cricket in their, for their county? Yeah, you know, it helps the club. Um, but it helps them still to tick over as well. So if they do get picked, you know, if they do get picked, or then at least they're playing a bit of cricket. So I think, you know, they need to sort that. They need to work work around that and find a way for these lads that have been sitting around for a month. Because um, it's middle of the summer, um, you know, it's peak peak summer, and you know they're not playing any cricket at all. He's not going to moan because he'd, he'd been playing more golf than cricket, but. Um, <laughs> It's. Uh, I just think that needs to be addressed, and um, you know, just to keep these lads in a bit of form. Um, but it helps out both sides, and it helps them, but it helps the counties as well. Because obviously they're frustrated that you know these players are not uh, they're not around. But um, you know, if they if, if there's some mutual sort of ground where they can come back and play a few games through the through the one day tournament, then you know, so be it. We've discussed it a bit already in terms of Welsh Fire actually not having a close link to Glamorgan because it's pretty clear that there is quite a strong link between host counties and 100 teams. I think that was something that we people probably assured sort of wouldn't happen ahead of the 100 starting, that these would be completely separate things. You know, you wouldn't be more likely to get a 100 deal if you went went to knots and that sort of thing. Um, is, is it an issue that this basically is clearly a thing? I mean, you might well get a, a young player who wants to play in the 100 moving from Leicester to knots because they know they'll link up to the Knotts player, they'll be more likely to have that link to the ground that gets them into the team. Is, is that an issue or is it just a thing? Doesn't that apply across all formats though, really? And and if you are a player that has vaulting ambition, then you believe that you're going to be fast-tracked into into an England side or an England Lions side or a, stand a better chance of winning certain things in Division 1 of the county championship if you move from a smaller club to a bigger club. Maybe, I guess, the question is whether it accentuates it to too great a degree, but it, it just might not. It I might think the genie's out the bottle on that, personally. I, I also think we've actually, because of the fact that we're all London Cups been played at the same time as 100, I think we've seen a little bit of the other way as well, where some players have left, for example, not. So you look at the players, they've so Zach Chappell's leaving, I think Sol Budinger's leaving, all the sort of fringe players seem to be going, where it feels like they can now be a senior player at say Derbyshire or Leicestershire or whoever, whoever it is and therefore actually get a, a fuller season than they would if they're sort of stuck at knots in the twos and playing a playing for a second string team that's never going to win the Royal London Cup um, also yeah I, I don't know I don't actually think it's been 
as big a problem as I as a lot of people maybe anticipated. So I think, for example, last year um, when Critchley was weighing up his options leaving Derbyshire, he was linked with Glamorgan because he'd been playing for Welsh Fire, and people said, "Well, you know, it seems like an obvious move. Is this a problem?" And he ended up going to Essex because I think he decided that was a, a better move for him. Um, could play with Harmer and play for a Div One team, and I I, I think. Until you get to a point where you have a top division that is exclusively made up of 100 hosting teams, which we don't have at the moment, and I don't think we'll have for a little while yet, um, I don't think it's a major issue personally. Mm, okay. Um, and then obviously the other big way it affects county cricket is just in terms of the schedule and how it squeezes everything else. Um, schedule chat. Yeah. Uh, and what the question I've written down is, are we ever going to be happy with it? There's re- reports that have come in the, in the Telegraph about what it might look like from 2024 onwards. It looks like it could be um, that look, the counties are pushing for the blast we played on Fridays alongside county championship Sundays to Wednesdays uh, maybe a six tier top division of the county championship with sort of two parallel tiers below it um, where there's a playoff to get into that top tier uh, so that would be a shortened county championship overall are you still with me Phil uh, <laughs> I've got three questions based on these reports and the Strauss report just uh, three yeah well the first is would you be happy with the following very rough schedule one day cup April, count championship blast until hundred starts, some sort of Red Bull thing alongside the hundred, count championship to finish the season. Uh then would you like the Red Bull competition alongside the count championship alongside the hundred to be count championship or something else? And if something else, what would you shorten to fit everything in? Okay, I'll go very briefly. Yes. I like the idea of the one day cup early doors. Um it's where they do it in Australia. I like that it would kind of prioritise that. I think, and, and get everyone going in the early part of, the, part of the summer. CC and the Blast to run together until the 100 starts works for me, for sure. Um, I love the fact that the county championship bookends the season. As I've said before, I, I'm really looking forward to the next three weeks in September. Uh, in an ideal world, we have some Red Bull cricket running through August, but to me, it's not the end of the world. Uh, and if we are concerned about say test match players such as I don't know Zach Crawley there's a week and a half gap between the second and the third test and you wanted to have a game then perhaps we can schedule some more Lions games in there or something like that there's always a, a, a you know a development side to play there'll be a Sri Lanka development side over here or you can play another game against South Africa tourists you know and then they can they can use that as, as in the old days but in terms of having county championship games through the three weeks of the hundred in in August I wouldn't want the county championship to be to be weakened uh, and it would have to be because essentially the top 70 or 80 odd players, men, most of whom will cross over from white ball cricket into red ball cricket because they're the best players, most of whom at least, they wouldn't be playing in it. And that to me would weaken the, the integrity of the championship. I can't, I can't see them playing championship cricket at the same time as 100. The, the, no, and so, the, sorry, it's sort of just very, and as for something else, as you say, an alternative red ball thing, it, it that seems like a bit of a red herring to me, I think. But so much of the um, review proposals are around the best versus the best, and you can't therefore have the Premier Red Bull competition being played at the same time as the champ- at the hundred when you've got so many players missing. Uh, I like, in theory, I like the idea of having the one day cup to open up the season. I think that that would be a really bright way to start a season. But the problem is, then you have you have county fans with nothing to watch of their counties during the 100. I just don't, don't think that can stand. I think that is going to make an already precarious situation much, much worse. So, I mean, I actually don't see that you can do, you can tinker with what we've got. I don't think you can fundamentally change it 
too much. You've got this huge immovable object in the middle of the summer in the 100. That's not going anywhere. Everything else has to work around it from the ECB's point of view. They can shuffle the championship fixtures around with the blast, maybe bring the, the blast a bit earlier to give you a bit more championship cricket in the, the sort of height of summer. But these are relatively minor tinkering. I, I do fear with this review, they're going to do all this and then it's actually going to look quite similar. Uh, sure, they can play a few more Lions games. Fine. I mean, Ramakrash, Mark Ramakrash covered this in his in his column that this month for the magazine. That there's a lot of talk about the best be the best, best Lions coming back, high performance. Well, he was like, well, we had a high performance centre at Loughborough, and they shut the whole thing down. Uh, he said it's like you have a government puts loads of policies in place, and another government comes along, and then they just <laughs> wipe them out. In this case, it's the same government doing its doing, <laughs> going back over these decisions. So I don't know. I don't envy Strauss. Um, and I think we'll probably end up with something not too similar to what we've actually got at the moment. Yeah, I've always had a lot more sympathy for for the people who put this this shit show together than than, than most do, uh, because no one will ever be entirely happy. No one will ever be entirely placated. Uh, but the one thing that people are going to have to accept is that that big monolith in the middle that we've just spent twenty minutes deconstructing well that's there that's that's there for the next few years at the very least it may change its complexion it may grow a wee bit but that's there um and it has to work or it has to be given the chance to work um uh, and so yeah look as joe says we can go round and round but the reality is that people are doing the best they can trying to squeeze four formats into into a season that's traditionally only had two and a half mm. um Let's move on to what next quickly. Then. And this is something we've almost come close to discussing, but not quite. And it's the question around private ownership of franchise. Obviously, if someone is invested in Welsh Fire, they are going to care much more if Welsh Fire win or lose. They are literally invested in it. We've also discussed uh, overseas players and the lack of availability for them. One way to get the funds, which would allow you to attract the best and to keep them away from something like the Caribbean Premier League, would be to have private investment in uh Matt, is this is this inevitable? Uh, is it good? Would it be good? Is is the model at the moment the right thing? Is it something we just need to wait and see? What, it, it's it's really tough. I think the the official line has always been no, these aren't for sale and won't be for the foreseeable future. I think if the right people came in with the right offers, you know, if KKR decided tomorrow that they were going to buy Oval Invincibles and make them Oval Night Riders, I'm I'm pretty sure it would happen. But um, I don't know. It's it, it, it's very tricky. I think. The, the problem there's going to be a big problem at some point in the next couple of years where people wake up to the fact that it's quite monotonous to have Abu Dhabi Night Riders, Trimbago Night Riders, Kolkata Night Riders, and they're all different enough that they're not KKR, but they're all the same enough that they are quite you know that they become predictable and boring. Um, and I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing for the ECB to have something a bit different. It's obviously you know the the whole IP of the hundred is. is um, is, is clearly worth having in terms of uh, as an asset. Um, I think there's a reason Cricket Australia have, have for, for now resisted private investment in the Big Bash, although that's a, another discussion altogether. But I, I don't really, I don't realistically think it's going to happen in the next couple of years. I think also with eight, with eight, it's a the problem is potentially that actually finding eight people to do that is quite difficult. I think there'll be a lot of buyers if they opened up a London team to, to private investment, but are they, you know, realistically, are you going to get eight different uh, groups, all of whom uh, are, are investing similar amounts of money, all of whom care the same amount, all of whom 
um, you know, ha- are happy to have the same amount of control over their teams. I'm not sure. Um, and also, you've got to think about what they'd actually be investing into because at the moment, the teams are sort of, you know, it's it's a conversation between various board members at counties, and then a lot of the teams in the hundred are effectively WhatsApp chats. Like, what what is Oval Invincibles for? 11 months of the year it's a whatsapp chat between solanke moody a couple of analysts a couple of assistant coaches and maybe a director that is, that is all it is so you know it's quite quite expensive um yeah whatsapp chat if you're paying a few million quid for it so yeah i don't know i i i think it will happen at some point probably but i think that's a sort of a, a three four five years time thing rather than 2024 2025 so fine um then final thing, and well done all of you for making it making it through in an increasingly warming commentary box, we should say. As Am well. I still here? <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, I want one thing from each of you that you change about the 100, and uh, I'm happy to go first if no one's jumping. Uh, so one, mine's about the ground experience uh, and about the the music that gets played. And it's just, it's it's too often, basically. And I, this this is it's not just me grumbling. Uh, I think there's a serious point here. So there was the game that Phil mentioned earlier, the, the Oval Invincible's first game at home. It was a brilliant game. Against London Spirit, yeah. Yes, yeah. And and part of the reason why the ending was so good was because actually the the chasing team were ahead in the game, uh, but there were a few dot balls, which meant that there weren't boundaries, which are an opportunity to play music in. So because there were dot balls, you then had the crowd actually really more getting into it and engaging with it and sort of like clapping the bowler in. Sort of that, that the pressure was actually building there in a way that it doesn't if there's a, you know, if if it's if it's boundaries and then it's like you know they're, they're playing blinded by the lights whatever it is uh, that it, it sounded it, so old then it, that it, okay it it, it it dissipates I think a little bit of uh, of the organic crowd uh, atmosphere that can build up by wanting to have something distracting at all times I think that's what I would change uh, I agree I agree with that mm-hmm. um, Joe do you want to go next yeah I'm sort of repeating myself because I think I might have said it last week but I think it's worth repeating in the wider conversation about how the hundred fits with county cricket. Uh, if you're signed up for a hundred franchise and you're not playing, you should be released to play for your county in the one day cup or whatever cricket is going on at that time. Uh, that's just got to happen straight away, and it's an e- it's an easy fix and uh, would make everyone feel slightly better about the situation. Um, I would I would change the recruitment. Uh, I would do I would firstly chat to the CPL and make sure that they started slightly later um, because I think that would be mutually beneficial. Um, I would televise the draft because I think it's crap when it's done via press release and Zoom. And I would have a higher proportion of the players in each squad picked via a wildcard system. So you do it at the end of the blast group stages, maybe the bottom three in each squad rather than the bottom one, um, which means that you don't get the ridiculous situation where Eskenazi is the best, one of the best batters in the blast over the last three years, but no one wants him because they've already filled up their opening spots and he you know, makes a mockery of the one-day cup by churning out hundreds every single day, um, which is what it felt like for most of August. Mm. And Phil, finally from you. It was billed two years ago, prize money's the equal for men and women. Isn't this an egalitarian tournament? This is a new way. Uh, but still, your best-paid woman takes about 10% of your best-paid man, uh, and that it repeats all the way down the line. Um, that's that discrepancy remains to me pretty horrific when you think about how central the women's game has become to the success or otherwise of this thing, and for 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 those who play in it to be paid basically ten percent of what your average man is being paid, I think is is shameful. But it does tap into a broader point that there is not very much money swirling around this thing, and if we want overseas players to be more persuaded to come and play and to 
if you like, um, find that extra ounce of energy when they're feeling a bit knackered and a bit burnt out and get them on that plane from Brisbane or Karachi or wherever it might be, um, then I'm afraid we do need a bit more money to come into it in the end because at the moment, the cold, hard economics of it make make the thing less appealing for cricketers than, than other franchise leagues out there. And in the end, I've always felt this right before the first ball was bowled, that this thing will 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 thrive or fall on the quality of the stuff, the quality of the game in the end, and how big a pull it can be to bring in these these exotic stars from all over the world. Right then, and that that's the hundred. We never have to talk about it ever again. So there you go. Uh, that, thanks very much for listening. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Uh, you've been great. If you did enjoy listening, please leave us a nice, maybe even a five star review on the app of your choice. Cheers. <laughs> Podcast Network.